Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Bart. Bart, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I reached out to you about the Kennedy assassination because I saw your website, The Prayer Man. You've done exclusive work on it. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Greetings, everyone. Uh, my name is Bart Kemp. I'm originally from the Netherlands, but I'm based in the UK for the last almost 30 years. And I was interested in the Kennedy assassination already at the time of the HSCA was happening. I saw a documentary and the, the bit I remember from that documentary was um, about the Nix film, a black and white copy of it and seeing a flash going through the bushes and whether that was a possible assassin and so forth. So um, I always uh, read articles in magazines here and there uh, during my teens. And then when the Stone film came out in the early 90s, I remember I saw it in a cinema in Vienna. It was called the American Cinema. And uh, I kept falling asleep. So and when I came back to the Netherlands after that, I basically said, uh, I've got to rent this video. Um, this was before the director's cut came out. Then after that, I got a videotape, which was a double cassette tape, uh, VHS, with and um, the movie, director's cut, and then also the um, a documentary that came with it. And then the internet basically kicked off uh, slightly after 94, 95. And uh, one, I think my first search was the Kennedy assassination. That was in a, that was before Google. Uh, it was called Excite, the search engine back then. And um, I started reading up about it and there was a lot of conspiracy talk and about uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, this, that, and the other. And I got to a point where I was just like, oh my God, they're never going to figure this out, blah, blah, blah. So I quit and I quit like 97, 98. And I didn't touch anything for 10, 12 years. So in 2010, something like that, I got fed up with social media. And then I said, get off your phone and start reading a book. So I got a bunch of books and I started reading them. And then after two years, three years, I just got more interested in what was going on online and slowly started reading things. And for 2013, for the 50th, I put an application together as a multi-touch application on a massive screen. And I just put uh, all kinds of different things. Um, nothing was really specific. It was just uh, showing videos or showing um, in conjunction with mapping. So I put a map of Google Maps of Dallas on and then put markers on there, et cetera, et cetera. And then I basically, in 2014, I started to look in, um, uh, into Prayer Man. And Prayer Man was started in 2013, and I saw it, but I wasn't really, uh, uh, you see, that focused on it. And it was only after I'd done that application that I thought, well, if you want to continue with this, then you need to find an area of interest. And that went alongside with reading Barry Ernest's book at that time. 
And just further investigation basically meant that there wasn't much going on about the Texas School Book Repository in depth and so forth. So I thought, okay, why not look into this? And um, it was actually the second floor lunchroom encounter that, uh, that kicked it all off for me because there was an element in there where Roy Truly, the superintendent said something that just made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And it was that he said he walked ahead of Marion Baker, let his gun run up the stairs. And I'm going, why are you going up the stairs in front of the police officer who's got a gun behind you and a possible assassin coming down the stairs from the sixth floor as such? You'd be caught into it. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I read more about it and more about it. And then I got into forums and forum i've been hanging out since 24 end of 2014 early 2015 is uh, reopen kennedy case it's rokc small forum lots of info um really pressing on for evidence proof posting it sharing it as such and theorize and compare facts and so forth and 2015 uh one of the other members stan dane said i'm going to do a book and that was at the same time as I was going to do it. And I was gutted. And I was like, you know what? Um, but he did the book so fast. It was out in a few months. And I was like, well, I can never do that. And he basically uh, did that. And while I was thinking about doing it, I just thought, no, you know what? I'm going to make an interactive presentation, which I did with the same software I used in 2013, but slightly better version, updated, of course. And there's a movie called Pray a Man More Than a Fuzzy Picture on YouTube since 2015 at about 120,000 or 130,000 views. Not bad. Um, and um, it's dated compared to what I've got now, but uh, it was good fun to do and it taught me a lot. And then I basically spent a lot of time in archives, finding the documentation, finding it, first of all, in forums. Harold Weisberg's archive is fantastic to go through. That's at Hood College. And slowly but surely, I started getting more bits. And then I started writing my first paper because I did a talk in 2016 for uh, Dealey Plaza UK and the Canterbury. They have a yearly, uh, a yearly meeting, conference. And I... I did a two hour presentation and I was running out of time and uh, a member called Barry Keane said, you should write it down. I wish he'd never said that because I ended up writing it down and I've spent from then till now, basically writing it down. And um, it's just unbelievable how much evidence there is and uh, how much the Warren Commission actually neglected, uh, including. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna do this, but I'm gonna use the evidence uh, to lead me, where does it go to, and uh, what does it show, and can it be backed up with more, are there more sources, um, and uh, so I started to write these papers. These papers were originally created to work as, um, I just say, like a script to make interactive movies as such. Um, the idea is still there, whether it's going to happen, I don't know. I might try and make a documentary uh, within the next year. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do. And right now I've released four papers. These are the anatomy papers. First one is about the second floor lunchroom encounter. The second one is about Oswald's interrogations. The third one is about the Texas School Book Depository. 
and the fourth one is about prayer, man. And now having released them, I'm thinking of sandwiching all four of them, go through a rigorous editing process, make it shorter. Because right now, well, two months ago, it was almost going to be 900 pages. And I've edited it down to 550 by basically taking out a lot of evidence, but linking instead of having the pages, the papers in the in the paper inside the document are basically linked to them. So that I managed to give that paper, especially the second and the third, uh, a massive haircut and um, um, drastically reduce the amount of pages as such. Now I think that if I put all four together, I probably can take another 150 to 200 out. So, you know, there'll be between three and four on the pages, just like a book. And uh, I might give it to a publisher or I'll just leave it on the internet. I'm not 100% sure yet. It depends on how much time is involved because must not forget, I've, um, like I said earlier in our talk, I crammed 10 years work into seven years, eight years. And um, I wouldn't say it did me in, but also it, you get a feeling that when, you, when you're done with it, you're like, I don't want to deal with any of this anymore. I'll see you later. I need a massive holiday and get away from this stuff because you've just focused, solely focused. I'm glad I got an understanding girlfriend and uh, who basically allows me to do this and uh, get away with it and uh, write it all down. And, um, you know, but at the same time, it's like, oh, I'm so happy that, that it's done. But the editing process still lingers in the back of my head. Like, I should have done that and add this. And shall I do that? This, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. So it's not like near, it's not near perfection or perfect and holy, so to speak. But uh, it's not far off. But it's, it, it's going to need some work. So hopefully I get this all out of the way before end of year. And... Um, I, the other thing is happening that, that happened because of the time factor that influenced the time factor was, I don't know if you're familiar, but most people know a guy called Malcolm Blunt. And I basically decided to work on this archive. Now you've got about 20 odd file cabinets, four drawer cabinets, which are just filled with paper. And the problem was that it wasn't organized at all. There's barely any organization. So you just have a folder. And before you know it, you're looking at things of customs or New Orleans or something from Dallas or the Central Intelligence Agency. So the organizational part was also part of what I had to do. And I'm busy digitizing it. I've done about 150,000 pages. Um, I released that archive in November, but still not done. There's probably about 30,000, 40,000 left to do. And I've been... I've done about 10% of it now and it'll take me till end of next year. And then hopefully uh, I've got that uh, done and also uh, the papers as such, and hopefully uh, something on, on in a movie format. I might do something like I did with the prayer movie, prayer man movie, or go something more professional. I don't know yet, but you know, there's been three documentaries now in the last six months. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the Josiah Thompson one, the, uh, the Payne's documentary and the um, the big one of Oliver Stone, which is very good, by the way. Um, so uh, yeah, now's 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 the time. Now the momentum is there. So uh, I'm I'm toying with the idea. So that's pretty much what I've done and what I'm doing now. So I've 
kind of found myself as a middleman in the assassination um, agreement or between Warren, at least the people that believe the Warren Commission and the people that would go the more CT route where they believe that more conspiracy theories, mostly because I think with some of them, I definitely understand and I try and get that perspective as much as possible. But there's points where I draw lines. Um, conspiracy theories, I think I agree with a lot of them. But I think they also go a little bit too overboard to the point where like you have a thing like best evidence where you're bashing in somebody's skull to pull out bullet fragments. I can't I can't get that far. Now, can I understand messing with an autopsy or doing something to that? Yeah, 100 percent. I can get down with that. I can understand that's not really that crazy to me. But then when like the Warren Commission. I, the, the things I had questions about were just aspects of like when you're reading it, it doesn't really seem like they're looking for an answer to, you know, who killed the president. It more looks like Oswald did it and we're going to we're going to show you that he did it. And it's like, that's really weird for an investigation of the president. You would think that you would be looking for anybody is really a suspect at this point. You're looking for any evidence to, to get on anybody. You wouldn't just stick to one person, which is like not how usually investigations go. And then if we look at all the number of people that back down from being appointed at the Warren Commission eventually didn't agree with the final saying even people saying like I didn't like the direction of how the Warren Commission was going I go I mean if you're getting if you're investigating the president's death if you're assigned to this that's a gold star on your resume I mean you can put that up anywhere like yeah I was part of the Warren Commission that investigated the president's death the only time you would back down and I, I don't know how much they're getting paid maybe it was too little but still it's that gold star resume standard is what I'm kind of basing my at least perspective on where I really can't trust both things is it has to be a sign of integrity it has to be something that you don't like the direction the Warren Commission is going is probably because it's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing or what it said it's supposed to be doing. And that links into the aspect of pinning Oswald for a murder that he more likely did not commit. And the reason why I say more likely is so I don't get shit from anybody out there, because what I started to notice between the people that believe the Warren Commission and the people that believe the conspiracy theories, like I said, I line up with certain points, but the community is so divided I don't see any progress getting done. It's just people fighting and making fun of each other. And to me, that's a big disservice because I'm a younger generation trying to understand the assassination of JFK, but also I'm looking at the events around it. I'm looking at Oswald's scenario, and now I'm getting influences from a bunch of different people, and I don't know what to trust anymore. But then I came across your website, and I saw how thoroughly laid out everything was, and I realized that you're going off the basis of the evidence. You're not here to speculate. You want to cut out the bullshit, and you want to get right down to the assassination and the evidence that we have on it. And that's what I could appreciate. So I would like you to I, – I, this might sound dumb, but I want – prayer man. Is that the person that everyone says that is on the grassy knoll or something? No. Okay. Rayman is the guy who's standing on the on the steps on the landing or the one step down on of the front steps of uh, the Texas Code Book Depository. Now, before I get there, I just want to get uh, something clear. Lone nutters and conspiracy theorists. The problem with lone nutters is that the Warren Report is their bible. It isn't a legal document because the judge in the Clay Shaw trial threw it out when the defense for sure tried to admit it as evidence. And he said, no, it's not a legal document. And he threw it out as something that lone others absolutely hate, but it's the truth. On top of that, they use that as basically the answers to everything. And if there's one thing clear, if you have 7 million pages of evidence in the archives. Those 7 million pages aren't well represented into the Warren, Warren report. 
Now, granted, there's ARB and there's HSCA material and some other of the committees, but overall with the Warren Commission. If you look, see, with the Warren Commission, if you don't believe the Warren Commission, then you have to point out where it's wrong. Just saying it like, well, I don't believe it. That's great. But why don't you believe it? What are the reasons? What are, what are the arguments for and against? And there's plenty to argue against. A really good argument, for instance, is that a lot of testimonies from people in Dallas was fixed, was edited, was bits that were left out. And how do we know that? We know that because there were unedited transcripts from these interviews. And these interviews were sent, if I'm not mistaken, in 67 to Washington, after which they disappeared. Um, there are several stories about documentation gone missing. And for instance, I don't know if you know what an accession number is, but an accession number is a number with a bunch of digits, basically, that is like a gold ticket. If you go into NARA, the National Archives, and you show that accession number, they, the people that work there, the archivists, should be able to find what you were looking for there and then. They know exactly where it should be. Well, those interviews, they've been asked for quite a few times, and every time people get, no, we don't know where it's at. It's basically lost. And now, of course, there's plenty of other stories. Malcolm Blunt, who basically goes through these, has been going through these archives over the last 25 years, and, and then some, has, has run into situations like that before. Conspiracy theorists is an even bigger problem than lone nutters. You see, lone nutters don't have reach at all. If you have videos, if you check on certain videos of certain people, it's being seen by 100, maybe 200 people. They don't reach anyone. Conspiracy theories are a much bigger danger because they assume things and to be true. And on some stupid reason, they think that one source is enough. Well, what meeting was that decided? Because a newspaper at least says we have another source or another two sources to confirm that this actually happened as such. And there's the, lies the problem. A lot of people take a one source just as gospel and basically shouted around like it's breaking news and shout as loud as you possibly can so you basically get people jump on your bandwagon and to go along with that thing a lot of times it's really easy to debunk stuff like that and that's when you get met with a lot of anger from these people because they're basically found out as such so i said to myself if you want to do this, find the evidence and be a stamp collector and get all the stamps. Try and get all the stamps. Now, it's always been difficult because the documents have been hidden inside the archives and weren't released. But there's no reason not to search and go through this stuff anymore, especially now since 2017 and 2018 and the 2020 releases, that people can go through that material. A lot of it is online, it's available, it's searchable, but that means you have got to put the effort in. Conspiracy theorists overall are incredibly lazy and say all kinds of stuff, like I said, like it is gospel, and that's where the problem lies. And the only time you can actually 
rebut them and refute them is go. Now, I've got this document and this document states blah, blah, blah. And what you're saying is not true. This, that, and the other. And that's what I did with my papers. I just went, you know what? I'm not going to say, and I'm not a writer. I mean, I'm a photographer. I've, I've worked in technology and I've worked in photography for the last 30 years. So I know a thing or two when it comes to dark rooms and processing and printing and, and so forth, publishing. And the photography side has always interested me. And this is where Prayer Man came in because I said to myself, if I want to continue doing this, I'm going to do something that's photography based. And when I saw that photograph and the photograph in 2013 that was published in, uh, on the education forum, that was called the Oswald leaving TSBD. And um, there was a fuzzy picture and the quality of that was terrible. And um, that brought me into Prayerman. And then I, from that picture already, I went, that's Oswald. And I've shown it to a couple other photographers and they all went, oh, yeah, that's Oswald. And he goes, like, it's strange that people don't get that. And I go, no, we've got trained eyes. We've been working with photography. We work with people and this, that, and the other. We recognize things and we take things into account and, and so forth. And then you start going into like, is there anything, any paperwork that uh, supports that assertion as such? Because, you know, at first, when it was said that it was Oswald, nobody really put the paperwork forward and said, hey, this is because of that. And that's what I thought. Um, that's what I thought I was, should do. And that's what I did. Because I'm not a writer, but I can stitch the evidence together and then basically put it into a timeline fashion some kind of a synchronicity type of thing where basically the bigger picture slowly starts to become clearer and starts pointing to things. And in a nutshell, the amount of lying that happened just after and in the months thereafter of the assassination is phenomenal. It's unbelievable. You just, and that's only because the story needs to stick of Oswald did it. And anyone who messes with that you, you get a visit or a phone call at least. And there are legion of examples that show that these people have been called, threatened, or even worse, murdered as such. Um, some of them very questionable circumstances. I'm not going to go into that because it's quite a big group of people. But um, it was definitely against all odds that all these people died in that period of time. And... Um, I thought it was just really important to try and put a picture together, which just says, well, you know what? This is what the documentation says. This is what happened. And this is what's going on. And, you know, I've, it's taken me since 2016 to put this story together. It's that much work. And like I said, I've crammed 10 years into seven. And then, you know, who, <laughs> who's that stupid to actually do that? This guy. But. You know, I like I said uh, before, I've uh, I, I've I've been immobile because I've been operated on my right foot sixteen times. So, and thank God it's now going well. Um, I'm almost out of the woods. And um, but you know, it was for me something to do, and I did. Um, I didn't go through box sets of DVDs and TV series. I just went. Now you know what? I've got a folder of documents. I'm going through that. 
and uh, I'm going to put the thing together and I'll try and put the thing together and see. And I was amazed. And I had a good story together in 2017, 2018, and I was about to release all my papers. And then all of a sudden I met, um, I met Malcolm Blunt two years prior, two and a half years prior. And then I visited him at home and then he took me to a place and he says like, look, this place is going to be emptied in uh, five months time. Will you be able to scan uh, part of heavy, Harry Livingston's archive? And I said, I'll try. So I did that. But Harry's work is mostly on autopsy based. Some Dallas, there's some bits on Tippett, this, that, and the other. And then um, I was there, like we stayed there for three days and we were staying in the B&B, three doors down, I'm not kidding, three doors down from the house that we had in a really picturesque village street in the Cotswolds. I don't know if you're familiar with the Cotswolds, but it's beautiful there. It's really picturesque. Everything's cobbled up and beautiful. It's like 200 years ago. That's what, two, 300 years ago. It's beautiful. And uh, it's in the west of England. And... Um, he basically uh, let me in and uh, let me stay in the evening while he was just chilling out. And I stayed another five, six hours there. And then I went through his archive and then I found all the gold that I wanted to find, that I needed to find and that became part of my work. So, you know, there was a reason for that. I don't know why, what, what the reason was, but I got it. And I was like, if you don't go through this stuff, you'll be the biggest fool ever because what is here is nowhere else. And it's true. I've gone through so much documentation of which none of it is online. And whether that has been censured and redacted later, or there's a huge part of stuff that in the 90s, it hasn't been, that was let go, but it hasn't been digitized as of yet. So there's a ton of stuff from what was released in 96 up till the early 2000s that, uh, that's nowhere else to be found. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to digitize your entire archive. The other reason was also I put my work on hold largely from releasing those papers because the stuff was everywhere. It was spread over all these 20 cabinets. So I had to go through everything to find out whether is this relating to what I'm doing, uh, this, that, and the other. And even now, I'm still doing it. And it's, you know, it's... Um, I still find a sheet here and there. So yesterday I found a sheet that I, I hadn't seen yet. So when we're talking about the archives, so these are folders like this and they just have all these, all these sheets in here. This is about the fingerprints for instance. And there's just tons and tons of stuff. So we got bags and uh, so like this. We call them in England, you call them bag for life. A grocery bag. It's like a shopping bag. Yeah. And uh, they hold about roughly anything between 1,000 and 1,500 pages. And I've done about 100, 100 bags so uh, over, over the years. And I've just scanned them in with my phone. So uh, I use a scanning app and basically started scanning them. And then because I'm uh, the webmaster of Dealey Plaza UK, I said, boys, we got to do this. And they went, yeah, we got to do this. This is really important. And I'm like, yeah, so I basically got uh, space on Google Drive, 100 gigs, almost filled, got 10 gigs left, I think, got to buy some more. And uh, that basically, I've just been filling that up with uh, with the material as such. It's searchable, and uh, I just had to organize the whole thing as such. So, yeah. Well, 
where would you like to start? Can, like, how, how deep in did you go with Oswald? Did you go before he even showed up that day to the... I, to I, I do Oswald 12 o'clock till 12.35. And then I do Oswald from uh, 10 to 2. No, not even. 2 o'clock. No, yeah. Just before 2 o'clock till uh, he's, uh, he's declared dead in Parkland. That's what I do. And for that, there is a ton of material available, an absolute ton. When it comes to um, what the loan nutters usually say was that Oswald was the one who left uh, the book, uh, uh, the school book depository building, um, which is how you can prove that like he was the only one that left. Why would you leave if you're fleeing a scene? I go, well, a lot of people left. A lot of people went. Um, I think I not towards the grassy knoll, but there were people like accounts of people that were coming back to the um, school book depository building, which you could tell was that means if they're coming back, they obviously left. So that kind of tosses that out there. But a lot of people are looking for ways to be able to pin. Oswald There's much more to it. There's much more to it. So first of all, some of the people that left came back too late to be let in to the Texas cool book depository some of the people waited on the steps to be let in so Billy Lovelady was one of them he's seen in the Martin film and also in the Hughes film smoking a cigarette on the steps even though he says they came back through the side entrance Lovelady is seen now this, these films are shot roughly at 10, 10 to 1 between 10 to 1 and 10 past 1 and um, Denny Arca Garcia is in there. Bonnie Ray Williams, who went outside and then back, waited back to get, be let in. And Bonnie Ray Williams is somebody who was on the fifth floor looking out the window. And some of the people were so late that they weren't let in and left, so they couldn't be accounted for. Some people came back around 2.30, 3 o'clock. Lord Viles was one of them. And then Oswald. Now, I grant everyone that Oswald was leaving quite quick, but he didn't leave as quick as they said he would. They said he left within three minutes. That's rubbish. Oswald left about 10, 12 minutes after the deed. This is in J. Gary Shaw's book. It's really well documented with the pictures of Roger Craig, because Roger Craig described that Oswald was getting in a Nash Rambler. And the photos show that Craig is on the street and there's a Nash Rambler roughly in front of the Texas School Book Depository. So the pictures are shot maybe a minute or two, or I don't know, depending on how fast traffic moved, before Oswald actually went over the grass and came down the hill. That is supported by not just Roger Craig, but also by, I think, two or three other people who mentioned the running man who looked like Oswald to go down. Richard Bartholomew is the guy who did the Rambler story. Yeah, and um, on top of that, the other thing is that people use the so-called roll call. And from the roll call, which was a, a lot of rubbish as well, because first of all, all the women were just not taken into consideration at all. Then neither of any of the men that were working for the publishing houses above weren't taken into consideration either. Yeah, Lord Viles, for instance, didn't show up until three, three o'clock. So for some reason, it must have been the Texas School Book Depository manual labor, the workers as such, 
that weren't there. And on top of that, Charles Douglas Givens was missing as well. And here's the funny part. The description for Oswald's so-called APB is very nondescriptive. His name is not mentioned. His age is wrong. His height is wrong. He's off. And his weight is off. But, you know, it's like, hi, play with it, this, that, and the other. But they say he was 30 years old. He was 24 at that time. And that's a big difference. But on top of that, when the APB for Charles Douglas Givens goes out, who wasn't there either, they give him a full description. His name, color, dimensions. It's all there. Full on precise. But Oswald's name is never mentioned as such. So, but then there's the beauty of it. It's called the Revel document. The Revel document is a list of people it's on our website of people that basically gave their name, their address, and their telephone number. And this is typed out in the thing. And Oswald is number one on that list as such. And on top of that, you can see two people that are marked as having um, files with the uh, with Jack Revel's uh, name alludes me, the special... Intel the intelligence division, and there's Ruth Dean and I think Joe Molina. They both have records inside, so they're basically mentioned as such, like they've got files and so forth. But the fact that Oswald's on the top of the list is is remarkable, and Oswald was one of the first ones. And this then also is confirmed when one of the three black guys goes downstairs and speaks to Billy Lovelady, and Lovelady says, "Yeah, Oswald just left. He just left. He left his name. And he's he's gone." Now, this is hearsay, but at the same time, it's like Lovelady wasn't really in favor of Oswald. He thought he was a wise guy and he wasn't, he really didn't like him. Um, the fact that Lovelady says that is it speaks for itself. I don't think Lovelady was lying. And it's something that he didn't repeat after that at all. So he wasn't on that very same day, he didn't speak very nice of Oswald. Well, he was a wise guy and a loner and this, that, and the other. So and that's another thing. Oswald was alone. He didn't instigate conversation. You talk to him, they'll answer you back. They'll talk to you. They will not instigate conversation as such. Greg Parker thinks it's mild form of Asperger's. Could be. But a really good example of Oswald's demeanor about this is A, it's his psychiatric report from uh, New York when he was in New York. So when he was a kid, he had a psychiatric evaluation. 53, I think, about 10 years prior. And the other thing is, it just alludes me. Um, oh, his his interview in New Orleans. Go on YouTube that. Oswald in New Orleans interview doesn't volunteer any information. But you ask him a question, he'll freely answer. Nuts whatsoever. He'll tell you everything. And then he basically shuts up again once he's answered the question. Doesn't say anything extra. So... No. Well, no, he was very much on himself. That's the thing. He just kept to himself. And because he didn't instigate in, uh, conversations as such. And a lot of people don't know how to deal with that. It's odd when they're quiet or they just all of a sudden burst out. It's just, it's just, it's not like what you and I do. It's, it feels like a one-way conversation as such. So you would be just 
asking me questions and I would just answer the question and that would be it. I wouldn't, you know, jump to a different subject or say, oh, well, this bit is, is needs to be discussed and be put in and this, that, and the other. That 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 doesn't exist like with within Oswald as such. So he's an oddball when it comes to that, and especially in those days. But you know what's much more important is the fact that he's exposed as a commie defector within 45 minutes of his arrest. He's a commie defector. In 60s Dallas, being a commie defector. <laughs> That's like a witch saying like, yeah, I did all this and I did this spell and I'm ready for the stake and be burned to hell and da 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 da. <laughs> That's what it is like. You're in 60s Dallas. It's, it's incredibly right wing, racist. You know, the Klan is big. It was massive in the 20s. Before that, I think there was 12% of people were part of a secret organization back then from Dallas and um, the Jim Crow laws, yeah, which are highly racist. Now, I don't know exactly when the Jim Crow laws were abolished, but it was just before or just after the assassination. So those feelings that was still there and you know that wasn't eradicated at all as such and we know that because there were a lot of right-wing groups there yeah the Minutemen um was one of them um and the anti-castro cuban thing was big not as big as in new orleans but it was there and you know it, those were different times when you were mentioning the guys um the hearsay what the guy was saying about oswald that he left could a lot of those witnesses maybe not have testimonies that should have been evidence because of the fact of the color of their skin? They just weren't taken for face value based on the times back then. Like maybe they had more information or maybe they gave a, a, a statement and they probably weren't written down 100% or maybe just tossed out. I think they were more scared to talk. So um, Troy West is a great example. Eddie Piper as well. They were both on the first floor when it happened. And Troy West was always near his coffee machine and the paper roll, the paper, the so-called paper that was used for the rifle bag. And Eddie Piper was somebody who had a DUI from 12 years prior. Now, in these days, a DUI is something like, yeah, you know, okay, 12 years ago, blah, blah, blah. But in the 60s, black guy, it's like... He had it branded on his forehead. That's the way, I mean, that's an extreme example, but the police would hold that against you. And, well, you better cooperate, boy, blah, blah, blah. Um, Charles Douglas Givens had a weed conviction, two ounces of weed. Let me just, play, yeah, let me just read that out. This is very important. Probably wasn't even good stuff either. It is the understanding Givens in his interview stated he was not in the building at the time of the assassination. He stated that it is his belief. He stated that it is his belief, however, that Givens would change his story for money. Okay, this is a report from uh, Jack Revel from the Criminal Intelligence Division. Oh, no, this is from the FBI, but it's about Jack Revel. And if you read for West's uh, Warren Commission uh, interview. He wants to talk as little as possible, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. 
when you read Eddie Piper, Eddie Piper had to be dragged in for a second time, second interview regarding seeing Truly on the first floor um, with the police officer, the helmeted police officer who was Marion Baker. But um, Piper cannot confirm that at all. And he just basically gobbles his way through it. If you look at the testimonies from the three guys in the window on the fifth floor, so that's James Jarman, uh, Bonnie Ray Williams, and Harold Norman, the contradictions between the three and their testimonies and their statements, it's just mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. They cannot keep the story, coherent story, over that period of time. They mess up all the time as such. And when it, well, when it comes to the guy that was going up the uh, staircase with the superintendent, so they they're the ones that gave the statement that they saw Oswald or di- like because Oswald's drinking a Coke on the second floor. And from every like Gary Hill, who told me that that's what happened. And then a bunch of other people. Was that is that made up? It didn't happen. No, it's made up. It's a total fugazi. So um, it was they're... a way to show that they were that he, I guess Oswald saw them go up the staircase and escaped out because he realized he was going to be arrested if you read my first paper i basically um did it in stages so like uh you've got baker's run baker's run is filmed by two cameramen by malcolm couch and by james darnell who sit next to each other and uh, it's quite interesting when you see their cameras and you try to run both films consecutively they basically cross each other and one cameraman is filming that run towards the front a bit longer than the other guy. And so we'll never know whether he reached the stairs, but if you look at the camera work and you follow the route, and this is the thing, this is what a lot of people don't get, is that you're going from 3D to 2D. So you need to imagine that third element, that, th- that, 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 that third dimension you have to, add that back into the movie that you're seeing and go, is this guy going actually the direction of the stairs? And he isn't, he's actually shooting past the stairs as such. On top of that, um, some of the statements they did, they gave, are made after they, after Truly and Baker saw the movie as such. Um, the problem is, is that the statements don't match at all. It is pardon me for swearing, but it's the biggest clusterfuck that you can think of because the whole thing is that it doesn't rhyme at all. And on top of that, they contradict each other. And on top of that, and there's a really important element, and I'll tell you this at the end, but if you go through all these stages, so the run, the steps, the vestibule, the uh, warehouse area, the elevators, the stairs, the actual encounter, then and you just use your common sense. And then you start looking into the reports that are coming out. And when is this particular thing mentioned and so forth? And then what happens after, et cetera, et cetera. This is where, um, where, where just the disbelief starts kicking in. But in a nutshell, really quickly, is that the actual so-called, what they call the vestibule, which isn't a vestibule, is an area that is between the lunchroom and the hallway and also the, 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 uh, the stairwell as well. And 
um, for Baker to see someone behind that door, which is at a 45 degree angle. It really limits Baker's view uh, to see anyone and so forth. And on top of that, what, what Truly did, Truly was, said he was up three steps going up to the third floor. And it's, if you look at the photographs and go three steps, that's nothing. But yet at the same time, he's about 12 to 15 feet ahead of Baker. And Baker's the guy with the loaded gun. And Baker, by the time, truly recognizes that Baker isn't behind him. He manages to get basically inside the door, which is the pneumatic door. Uh, with a door closing element. And that door closing element takes about three to five seconds to fully close. And when they testify, they go, yeah, the door is closed. Baker was inside. And I'm going, how can you possibly do that? Because Baker is actually doing about the same distance as Truly did, but he's already behind the door that closes slowly. And it's a really small area. It's really tiny. It's about five or five, six feet from, from, from the lunchroom door to the actual um, closing door as such. It's absolutely nothing. And there's already two people in there. And then Truly says, oh, I was just leaning in. And he's, and he's just bullshitting his way through it. And then every time he's bullshitting and he gives too much detail away, he goes, and then in the end he goes, I don't know, just like that. He ends his testimony as such. Um, I'm going to keep this really short on this matter because there's a really important part of the interrogation of Oswald and in conjunction with the second floor lunchroom encounter. This is what everybody needs to know because to me, it's a pivotal part. Oswald's arrested at two o'clock, 10 to two. He arrives around three, four minutes after two. And we know this from a movie where, where there's a clock in uh, one of the rooms where Oswald is basically being looked, locked up in and Billy Lovelady sits in there as well. After that, he's briefly interrogated by Richard Stovall and uh, Gus Rose. And then Will Fritz comes in. And that's when the real interrogations start. Now, this is important because we don't know anything about the period 2.30 to 3.15. We don't know anything about that. We know that Fritz had his hands on him or talked to him. But there's no report whatsoever. The real reports actually start at quarter past three. And that's when James Hosty and James Bookhow, who was actually before there, but was told to wait for James Hosty. Hosty had Oswald's file from New Orleans. So Hosty is sent over there, gets there, talks to Bookhow. They go in. They talk till about four o'clock, four or five, roughly. In that interrogation, Hosty is the only person making notes. Now he makes notes in his flip book, like, you know, what cops always had and feds, it's a little bound book and just start making notes in it like that. These notes didn't come to light until late 90s, early 2000s, when Hosty, who said he destroyed his notes, asked per official. FBI procedure, all handwritten notes are to be destroyed when a typed up statement is 
is that the one that had blood on it or something like that? I heard medical evidence that was written down from whatever. No, that's medical. That's medical. It's completely different. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that I found a document in 2019 in Malcolm Blunt's archive. It was called the Hosey Papers. And I sit there. No, I was standing there. And I'm not kidding. I stood in front of seven, eight, nine um, file cabinets. And I just opened the drawer and I said to Malcolm, well, why should I start? He said, start wherever you want. And I just went, and I went, oh, hosty. Yeah, I'll start with this. Now, this is about, I don't know, 80 to 100 pages thick. And I'm going through it. And then I read in this document the most important thing that I've ever found documentation-wise. And I shouted out gold. <laughs> and Malcolm went, what the hell? And I'm going, you've got to see this. Now, this document after further investigating, um, is mentioned in the Hosey's book. Hosey says, after the interrogations, he got a blank block of Dallas police affidavits. And you can see it in the photocopy. It says affidavit in any fact, in mirror writing, in mirror. So he used the blank backside of the, of the actual pads. And he writes down partially... Um, Oswald's belongings that are displayed in the office next to Captain Fritz's. But he also starts making like a pre-report about what was said as such. This then compares with the notes of Hosty, which he took with his flip book, notebook. Start making more sense and put things in better context because in these flip notes, he basically just writes words and all of them are unrelated, even though he makes, uh, he writes like rectangles around them, so basically starts sectioning them. It doesn't make any sense to sections whatsoever. But when you start looking at the piece of paper that I found, which is just written on A4 and he just starts writing it out, there is absolutely no mention of a second floor lunchroom account. But more importantly, it states where Oswald was and Oswald said where he was but it wasn't as clearly written down in the flip notebooks. But once you have that second page, the first page, the, the original notebook page starts making more sense because they are in relation to each other. Now, when it comes to the second floor lunchroom encounter, there's absolutely no mention of this whatsoever. Now, something else really important is happening. Obviously at the end of that interrogation, in that time, how would you contact headquarters? Not by fax or email. You pick up the phone. You call headquarters because that was the way to do it. That was procedure. And then afterwards, you make your report up. So they call them up. And I'm thinking they're talking to Shanklin. And they basically start to talk about what they've done and what they've seen. But most importantly, during that first interrogation, they mentioned about Oswald seeing two rifles. This is the Warren Carter matter who basically brought two rifles in and showed them to Truly in front of his office two days prior the assassination as such. So what did the FBI do? They're not sending Hosey to the Texas School Book Depository. Of course not. They've got loads of agents. So they send other and they have other agents in that place. So, of course, they call and make sure that guy called Nat Pinkston, who's, who's an agent for the FBI, to talk to Roy Truly about the rifles. Now, he writes a document, and this is really important. 
it times this document because it's based on Oswald's interrogation. So this document is happening between five, six, seven o'clock. That's it. It can't be later. But he, he talks to them and he talks to Roy Truly. And this is where the second floor lunchroom encounter is invented. And I'll tell you why. First of all, Bookard and Hosty make absolutely no mention whatsoever about this so-called encounter. Oswald didn't either. But Pinkston writes this in his document. That document gets released on the 22nd. Okay, that very same day, there's a report from that Pinkston that basically says second floor lunchroom encounter, et cetera, et cetera, policeman running in and so forth. And even though there's absolutely no mention in the writings of Jim Hosty of that particular interrogation, it gets better. So A, we've got that report and it's already coming out. But on the 23rd, the next day, there's a joint report by Oswald, by, by Bookhout and by Hosty. And again, there's no mention whatsoever of a second floor altercation, anything whatsoever. So then we've got a problem, of course, because the document from Pinkston says there was a second floor lunchroom encounter. So the 23rd doesn't make a mention of it. And these are the people that were actually active and they were present at the interrogation as such. What happens next is that Bookhout, after Oswald's death, rewrites the first report completely. And there are three elements, major elements, that are basically done a 180 and basically make it look that Oswald was encountered on the second floor from that during the very first interrogation. If you look at Marion Baker's statement, there's mention of a talk on the third or the fourth floor with someone, not the second. You can't go wrong with this whole thing by just being one or two floors off. Now, that's a massive problem to put it forward like that. And it just shows, or it points to an insertion of something that isn't present and hasn't been discussed at all during that first interrogation, but basically has been invented by the feds. Now, Oswald said, I got a drink from the second floor and went downstairs to eat my lunch. That's as far as it goes. So Oswald gave him the idea that he went to the second floor. See, the second floor wasn't meant for laborers to sit at. Anyone who says that is completely full of it because there was separation between office people and laborers. What, sweaty laborers among nice dressed ladies? Are you kidding me? There's a massive difference. Roy Edward Lewis said it as well. He said it wasn't because we were black, but no one was allowed to sit down there. Bill Fraser said in a, in a talk on Facebook a few years back, he said you had to get permission from Shelley to go upstairs and check out the pretty ladies as such. They weren't allowed to go up there unless they had reason to do so. That's how it worked. It's just, and even now in many companies, if you have people that work in overalls, dirty workers, this, that, and the other, they don't sit in the same lunchroom as people in not nice office attire and suits and women in nice dresses as such. There's no way, there's no way that that happens. So other than getting a Coke, they had no business in there whatsoever. So in that bit, 
And that particular bit, the second full lunch room encounter is brought forward, but it's brought forward by the FBI. And I'll give you another great example. I never wanted to look into the Heidelites. There's certain things that I just didn't want to do. I didn't want to do the lineups either, but I was forced to because um, it's about the timeline and what's really happening as such and what's pivotal. Well, the okay. lineup is like the most controversial thing I've noticed. Joseph McBride, when he was on my show, he mentioned a couple of things, but I had Dale Myers on before that. And that's the one thing on the education forum, if you want to call it an education forum, is everybody's fighting about is over a fucking jacket and over all the lineups. And it's just like, it does. I, I get it. I get that's a, That's yeah. It's a very small detail, but it's like everybody just really shouting. And then you notice when someone makes a claim or says something, instead of quoting or doing anything besides whatever, quoting the person yeah, above the them, but they go right into making fun of each other. And it's just like, that's how, you know, like it, it, what the hell are we doing here? I only, I only make fun of other people that don't put the stuff forward. I've got great admiration of people that basically start digging and go, well, this is in the Warren report. This is the FBI report. This is that. And I'm going, yeah, I can, I can work with that. I can look at that. I can verify that. Most importantly, I can verify that. Um, the lineups I've also got in my second paper. And again, I'm just basically keeping it to bullet points. And it's just it's devastating the amount of evidence that basically uh, come forward. But now let's get back to the Heidel ID. At this point, with all the evidence that I have, the Heidel ID doesn't exist on November the 22nd in any DPD statement, any DPD interview at all, because I don't know why. So here we go. We've got five people in a car. Paul Bentley's one of them. Charles Stroman Walker's one of them. Gerald Hill is one of them. And there's another two. Um, Bob Carroll is four. Of course, there's always one that I can't. But anyway, so Oswald is taken in this unmarked police car from the Texas Theater to the TSPD. Um, from the footage that I saw in the Oliver Stone documentary, which is the best footage I've seen, quality footage I've seen, is that they pushed Oswald down. He couldn't sit straight up. They pushed him down. According to the statements, Paul Bentley got his billfold out and Charles Truman Walker as well. And they read out the name and no one mentioned Heidel at that time. They do in later statements, but not on that day. On top of that, when they make statements, even in December, they make absolutely no mention of the Heidel ID, which is really strange because it's like, I don't know, roughly 10 to 14 days after it happening. But then when you think like, okay, that's all on. Then you've got Paul Bentley in the corridor being interviewed. You've got Gerald Hill twice being interviewed, right? And in neither instance, they make any mention of Heidel. Not, not once at all. They spell out Oswald, they spell it out, but no Heidel. Then Bentley gets interviewed by Jay from WFAA. I don't know his last name, I forgot it. And again, makes absolutely no mention whatsoever. There's an article at my website, just type in Heidel. It'll take you to, uh, it'll take you to it. 
and um, there's uh, no mention whatsoever. It's only in later dates, the first mention actually from in during the interrogations is 11.30 on Saturday morning, almost so 23 hours later, practically after the event, they mentioned the Heidel ID, which is really convenient because in the morning of the 23rd is when the FBI finds a rifle ordered by a guy named Heidel. Now, I'll do you one better. About one o'clock, a mystery call from a DPD officer goes to the 112th military intelligence to a guy called Robert E. Jones. And he takes the call. And he's basically being asked about Oswald Heidel. And he basically relays what he has, and which is basically a lot of newspaper clippings on Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union in 59. The source for the call cannot be determined, which is another miracle. Just people forget or just don't know how it happened, blah, blah, blah. But the person that made the call, somebody who worked for military intelligence, but was also connected to, was working for the Dallas police and probably for the criminal intelligence division on the Jack Revel. Now, it's not Don Stringfellow. A lot of people do that, but it isn't. He only gets in the picture in the evening. Now, the military intelligence uh, traffic and files and documents and all that are kept away from the Warren Commission by the FBI. So the Warren Commission had absolutely no knowledge what's happening about this stuff. It only comes out during the HSCA. And I think Paul Hodge is mainly responsible for that. He's another researcher. And during that HSCA and also later in the ARB, they delve in deeper. During the HSCA, Robert Jones is being interviewed two, three times. Um, it's all linked in my paper. And what it comes down to is that the, the card, the Heidel ID card, it's never brought up. Other than card carrying communist, there is no mention of whatsoever of the so-called Heidel ID on that particular card. I'll do you one better. When Oswald's being frisked and all his stuff is taken off him, it's put on display. Hosty writes it down, like I mentioned earlier. Those lists do not contain a word on Heidel whatsoever in that particular wallet. There is a wallet being found in the tippet scene, which apparently is Oswald's wallet as well. There's two wallets. That wallet disappears, just like that. But that apparently has a Heidel ID in it. So it's going to be difficult to reconcile that with the one that was in his back pocket as such. Now, Robert Jones relays this to the FBI at quarter past three and around 4.30. One to the FBI and the other one to the DOJ. Other than that, there's no real mention on that particular day of the Heidel ID. And then you've got another problem. Around seven o'clock, uh, when Oswald's arraigned for Tippett murder, 
a guy called Manning Clements. Manning Clements was somebody who did FBI training for the police and so forth. And Clements makes a report on the 23rd and he inserts the Heidel ID because he said he went through the evidence that was lying around because this is beautiful because although he lies during Warren Commission, his Warren Commission testimony say, I did, I, uh, I, I spoke to Oswald around nine o'clock, but then describes that Oswald's taken out for a lineup at such, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going, you're wrong by two hours. This happens between seven and 7.45. And he says that, that's, that that ID is in that pile of evidence. Well, Hosey didn't record it. But on top of that, there's another interrogation after 7.45. This is right after I'm just a patsy, okay? So there's two movies that are beautifully can be put into times in a time setting, one at 10 quarter past seven and the other one at 7.40, 7.45. Because he's being taken out for the Davis sisters lineup. In the first movie, he says, they've been giving me a hearing without legal representation. Did you, did you kill the president? I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. Then he does the lineup and he comes back out the elevator. And that's when the sequence starts with the Patsy sequence. Again, he's asked if he shot the president about three times. No, I did not. People keep asking me that. Well, that's why people say that he was he killed the president for attention. And I go, well, that video is proof that no, that's not true because you wouldn't say you're a patsy. I don't care about any of that. It's pure speculation. Show me the proof. Oh, I shut up. It's absolute. I don't mean that to you, but people that say that should just shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You just speculate. So Oswald is in that. But the thing is, he's interrogated after that. If Clemens had seen that ID and he was there with book out. Then he would have said to book out, look, book out, there's a second ID with that name. They would have brought that up. They would have shown that to Fritz and Fritz would have done that during the interrogation after 7.45 and say, yo man, what's going on? But no, he doesn't talk about it until 11.30 the next day. That's so questionable. It's unbelievable. Well, I have I have two really big questions. One, the ID. Could that and this there there are two separate questions. One question goes to the aspect of could that ID be like how they mark a man in the intelligence agency or something? They have this thing where you read it, it says Heidel. Well, if people have reversed those and says says Jacqueline Hyde. So then if you look at that, could that be a CIA like kind of like little secret thing? No. Okay, but then the second question would be, is it possible that they got to Dallas police when all this was going down and they refused to look at certain aspects just because the idea was we need Oswald to be the person that takes the fall for this? So it oh, I'll do you one better. If you look, like I said, between two and four o'clock in my interrogations paper, there are two documents from J. Edgar Hoover. And in one of them, three o'clock, he already says, I think Oswald is our guy. He thinks he's the killer. Now, which is remarkable because three o'clock Dallas time means Fritz, as I had just started his little powwow with um, Boyd and uh, Sims, two detectives, before Bookhout and Hoshi got there. And then the second document is, I think, to assistant DA. The name escaped me. It's not Katzenberg. Around four o'clock. And at quarter past four, Katzenberg says, we need to make sure that Oswald is the guilty party and we need to bring that out of the state. 
This is a document from Tolson to others in the FBI and basically relaying that they had a phone call. These guys, the top FBI guys and Katzenbach, they were on the phone between three and four and basically discussed about how Oswald was going to be the guilty guy. You know, this is brought up in this documentary uh, that came with the Stone film, where um, in the 20, on the 25th and the 26th, there was basically uh, this document where Katzenbach said such and such, blah, 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 Oswald is the guilty party. And everybody was just like absolutely flabbergasted about it. But it's much worse. It is even before the actual first interrogation is being recorded that they actually want Oswald already to be the guilty guy. Think about it. You're arrested. And an hour later after your arrest, you've got the head of the FBI and you've got the uh, assistant general attorney, district attorney, basically saying Oswald's guilty. How can that be? Within an hour. Well, how can that be? So did you see the assassination of Miss Payne, Max Good's documentary? Yeah, yeah I saw it uh, yesterday and uh, the day before. I watched it in two, two goals, but yeah. Which one was interesting to me was when Mrs. Payne said that Oswald had called the house twice after he assassinated the president. And I go, I only know if we only get one phone call when we go to jail, no matter who you are. And they're going to give an extra phone call to the guy that allegedly killed the president. But then I, I spoke to Randy Benson, who talked about a rally call as well, too, that there was another call that wasn't that's even, fake. It, it, that's fake. Fake. Total fake. Well, Total, think, absolute fake. Unbelievable that Randy Benson still thinks that because the evidence is absolutely destroys any assertion that that so-called call ever happened. It's unbelievable. I basically put that also in my paper and it's right there in a spreadsheet and there's no way in hell that ever happens, ever. This is a made up story as well. Total fugazi. If we go back to the two phone calls that were addressed to Mrs. Payne, I think a lot of people think like, and it was proven in the documentary, they go, have you worked for the CIA? She's like, I don't remember. No, I don't work for the CIA. And then they go, well, we have a document that says that you work for the CIA. I mean, that was interesting that Max Good put that in there and kind of flipped the questioning because the beginning was kind of more like it was going in line with the Warren Commission. And, and yeah, it was a bit all, flat. The yeah. thing was, it, it's, it's flat. The last, it's the last 20 minutes that basically is like, Good job. Good effort. I, I was on my seat. I was like, holy shit, here we go. And um, <laughs> uh, when that when he pulled that out, um, one thing that you do find out with a lot of people that worked like the CIA and the FBI back then was that it was a the families were really, really involved because the families usually started with like a father or something that could keep a secret really, really well. And they go, well, we'll extend that to your kids. And that's why um, uh, Mrs. Payne and her sister were both involved in the CIA. Now they might've had different influences depending on, you know, one person did more than the other one, the other sister. Um, but I, I bring this to this aspect of things when people blame Oswald for being the killer or being this lone nut person, I go, the motorcade changed routes. So he would have had to been set up somewhere else if he was the shooter. But what I thought was interesting. And from what I've heard from people I talked to is that this motorcade the route changed, but it went right by where Oswald's work went. And now I can see the aspect of why people would think maybe the pains had an involvement on there because they probably know Oswald's schedule of when he's going to work or something. And then it's just easier to have that car go right by that building. And then you can, not, I, can not, I just say something? You can correct me. It's okay. 
you got to stop reading these books because if you read books, right? No, no, I'm not kidding. When you start reading the books, you get the opinion of one guy. And this guy who made his, that particular person, doesn't matter who, what author, you get their opinion, their view on the way they look at things. The best way to do this is this. The files. The files. Now, it's an absolute bastard to do this. You can read the books because they will give you a generic idea. But if you want to really want to know what's what, the paperwork helps you with that. The paperwork puts the dots on the eyes and also will teach you what's right and what's wrong. And then you get into a different level than what that author actually did. Because most of these authors didn't read all the paperwork. They didn't because there's so much on top of that. It wasn't all released as such. They didn't have the access to it or they're too lazy to go to the, to the archives to get the documentation. I mean, there's multiple reasons for that. But that will give you a much better idea about actually what happens as such. And you also learn to read between the lines, the language being used, the people that see it, who's the document from, who's it to, what time is it sent, and so forth. And that's what gives you the much better picture, overall picture, and go, hold on a minute, what's happening here? And that's what I did with my paper on the interrogations. I was like, after the second floor, lunchroom encounter paper, which I thought, well, I'm doing it per stretch, per area, where they're going through before the stairs vestibule and so forth but then i thought well how am i going to do that with the interrogations and at first i did it by name i did lavelle i did wade and they had their own chapters but it looked like my websites and i was like no that's not what i want to do what i should do and this was after the two movies that i just described and also it's in the corridor between 7 and 740 is to try and time base it when was this written? When was that received? When was this set? This, that, and the other. Because then you get a really kick-ass story together. Yeah, I mean, I'm amazed I managed to do it to 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 a large extent and basically be able to, to create that story as such. And then many facets are giving you a much better idea about who, what, where, when, how, etc., and basically that makes you think differently instead of in generic terms. Most authors, most interviews, everything is condensed. You have to say it and go, I'm telling you within 30 seconds, what's what, this, that, and the other. And that's a condensed version because if I do the uncondensed version, I'm talking 10 minutes, but I get a much, much better picture. And I thought, no, I'm going to write this down. So you see the nuances and the timeline and also all the detail what's happened. I'll give you another great example. Oswald being frisked. So Oswald's frisked in the car. And I read documents on Paul Bentley saying, like, I frisked him in the car. And then Charles Truman Walker in his HSCA report, he's the officer with the white cap. Who's standing? Paul Bentley's the guy with the cigar standing outside with Oswald. Yeah. And he's looking into the camera like while they're about to push him in the car. And then Charles Truman Walker is the guy, the police officer with the white cap. 
and they're also bringing him into the Dallas police. So Walker is talking in his HSCA report and he says, just before I left, I frisked him and I frisked him real good. So hold on. So there's two people that say they frisked him before the interrogation. Well, that's great. But then the Markham lineup at five past four, 10 past four, Elmer Boyd and, and Richard Sims, detectives, right hands of Wilfrid's trustees, frisk him again. And lo and behold, they find a bus ticket in his. They fucking added pocket. it on him. They added on. it on him. Hold on. So I say the bus ticket is a flimsy piece of paper. Could have been overlooked because it was in his shirt pocket. But. Five bullets in his pocket. <laughs> Two hours after his arrest. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Now. Oh. That's how you do this. See, now this is how you point things. So hold on. Either that's been planted on him. Yeah. Or the two first officers were liars. I mean, I don't see any gray area in this. Okay. So there's, there's no gray area. So either those two officers, Bentley and Walker, lied at total different times, years apart about it. Yeah. Or um, Boyd and Sims planted this crap. Now, why do I say planted this crap? Is that during the interrogation by Gus Rose, Oswald, Rose recited years after that Oswald told him that the gun was tossed at him in the, in the Texas theater. On top of that, there's reaffirmed by George Applin. He said, at some point I saw one officer grab a gun and throw it at him and make it look like he had the gun. The thing is also, there's a problem with the whole statement with, uh, Oh, God, now I forget his name. Um, the police officer that basically got whacked in the face by the gun as such. Um, Bentley also uh, injures his ankle and walks out on crutches. I thought the whole thing was a dog and pony show. It's unbelievable. But, you know, like I said, either the first two are lying or the second two are lying and basically inserted that on him as such. But how the fuck do you miss five bullets in someone's pockets when he's already been frisked twice? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not going to buy that whatsoever. And at the top of that, the cab ride, which is after the bus ride, gets inserted afterwards in on the 23rd. Oh, I took a cab as well. Oh, really? Oh, you did? All oh, right. And it just gets added onto. And when the gun is being brought up, the handgun, well, you know, you know, you carry a gun like boys do. That's not Oswald. If you look at Oswald's demeanor, the way he speaks and so forth, he doesn't pull off rubbish like that at well, all. The way I'm starting to get a vibe of Oswald was that he was the type that would, you know, as soon as it was about to be his lunch or right when it was his lunch, he'd be right at lunch, but he would grab his lunchbox. And when he sat down, he would sit, place his lunch and then open it up like very, 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 very like um, military-esque, not like an aspect that he was military, but an aspect of like very, very like, because I, I, I mean, I've had kids in my school that had like a, a form of Asperger's, but they would do everything in such an everything, every single fork, every single lunch thing had to be exactly perfect, like an OCD type thing. And I mean, that would make sense why you wouldn't have a gun. You just have your, you know, your uniform, whatever you're wearing to work. And then you have your proper attire. You wouldn't have your gun on you. But the thing is, when it comes to the bullets that they found, is it possible that when they said they found bullet casings at Tippett's murder spot. 
could they just looked at the bullets and been like, this is what you got to put in his jacket, the same ones that are fit this? Well, I never looked into that because like I, uh, I've said this before, I basically stopped at the, I, I didn't do the tippet thing. I don't do Beckley either. I've read some bits of it. And maybe I will dig into tippet and Beckley, but, you know. Because there was apparently so two much. cops that day. It was it was Tippett, and then there was another officer that was with him that left to go on a call that went to some type of traffic incident. And this is the issue that I start having is because why I say the mass confusion around Oswald was not only was there a bus incident, but there was a taxi incident where he gave a cab to an elderly lady. But also when he goes back to his apartment or whatever this building is, there's a I've heard from Joe McBride and I've heard from Gary Hill that there's just a random cop car that comes up honks. And the lady that was at Oswald's apartment thing, cleaner or whatever, was watching the TV of the assassination or watching the TV about the news reporting that was going on that day and heard this car, this cop car honk. And I, I asked the question, is that Tippett's cop car? And they said, no, Tippett's squad car was a different number. Tippett was f- farther out. And then I go, then who was that? And they can't identify that it was the other guy that said he went to the traffic incident either. But there was a cop car that was reported that did honk outside of that building. But then Oswald leaves after he grabs like some rolled up $1 bills. And that's when they think he was going to the theater. And then later he gets apprehended and it goes down into whatever happened there. And then I have questions about the lineups as well, too. People are fighting back and forth about lineups. Was it people dressed up in suits or were all the people that were picked for the lineup just completely well, I, I put all that forward in my uh, in my paper, the discrepancies and differences and so forth. The fact that cops were involved wasn't a thing that was being done at all. That comes from several angles. Uh, Boyd said it during his HSCA and some of the others. Um, you know, it was Fritz's job to nail Oswald. The thing was that Oswald was just too smart for Fritz. Oswald wasn't clever, you know, but he he was smart. So, but if you're not clever, you see, if Oswald stayed in the building 10 minutes longer, they wouldn't have been able to nail him as such. But Oswald was basically instructed to get out and go to the Texas theater. I mean, that's a weird thing to do. That's a suspicious thing to do. Why not go to your wife and say, God, you know what? They killed the president right in front of a building, blah, blah, blah. Now he goes to the cinema and watches a double feature. I'm sorry, but that's really suspicious. I just I just can't reconcile that. And of course he was there to meet, told to meet somebody like that. I mean, I don't think... Uh, um, what was the warning signs for him to feel like, you know, if he was smart and he was kind of like knowing that he was being set up, what were the warning signs for him that he was being set up or that they were, Oh my God. They're gonna well, I don't think, you know what? He knew it when he was, uh, when he was after his arrest and when they basically tried to get him for that, get him for the murders. But the thing was also, they kept him more in the dark because even when he talks to, uh, Ah, five o'clock on the 23rd. Um, the guy from the Dallas Bar Association. I need to look that up. Um, the guy from the Dallas Bar Association basically talks to him. And Oswald is kept in the dark. And that's how it feels. And that's what, 26, 27 hours after the event? And he still doesn't know what the hell's going on. 
And they interrogate him about everything, but they're not really mentioning what 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 they're keeping him in for as such. And you know what they say I kill a police officer. You know, he didn't even he said he didn't even know where Oak Cliff was. So I don't know whether that's true or not, but the thing was he's every time he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And also he's been asking for a lawyer so many times on the 22nd. I mean the press conference, he does it three times during that minute that he's allowed to talk as such. Um it's um it's just it's just absolutely mad. Um oh hold on, here's his name. One sec. H. Lewis Nichols of the Dallas Bar Association. He interviews him at seven five fifteen. So uh um yeah, so he just basically is just he doesn't know what's going on. He's kept in the dark at the same time. He finds more out from the newspaper newspaper reporters in the hall than actually from the people that are interrogating him. They're not telling him anything. So, and you know, the thing is also, the problem is that when you look at the notes, you know, it's just their version. You know, there are no questions mentioned. And it is just words, answers are basically just jot it down. And then people say, well, it should have been recorded. Well, it wasn't standard procedure in that time, during that time. It, I think it, it took almost 20 years before it became a standard procedure to record uh, police interrogations, like early 80s, which is mind-boggling. You know how that went back in the day? So Fritz sits and he interrogates you. And then there's somebody sitting in a chair behind you, right, watching every move. Now, when it comes to court, Fritz will say what he said in court. Now, whether that's true or not, that's the second thing. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. But the guy in the back will basically just go, yeah, that's what he said. That's all he needs to do. He needs to confirm what was said during that interrogation as such. That's how people, that's how Will Fritz got a 98% clearance rate. Now, Think about that, 98%. Where do you get a 98% clearance rate? North Korea, perhaps? Belarus, perhaps? Zimbabwe? Yeah, possible. Yeah, right, dodgy countries, each and every one of them. But hey, Dallas, 98%, together with Henry Wade, and send people to the chair, yeah, for nothing. Because there's, uh, there's a good article that's also mentioned in the beginning of my paper. Um, I think it's when Henry Wade killed a man, something like that. And then there's a guy called Tommy Walker, black guy. And he was sent to the chair within months. He was gone. And the whole thing was just fabricated as such. And when you just, you know, and this isn't just Dallas. This is just the South. Yeah, this is the way it went back then. And, you know, strong white wing uh, beliefs, racists, you know. When a good time to be black in that era, in that time, when it comes to justice. In the interrogation room, did they show a picture of Oswald holding the rifle, holding the pistol, and holding the, the for people? backyard photos are shown in the afternoon of the 23rd. I think that's the inter actual interrogation where Gus Rose is present as well. Yeah, that's correct. So did... Oswald stated that that wasn't him, like that's his face, fakes. but that's okay. So they did mo modify the photos in that. Well, that's a good question, but 
there like, are well, well, a lot of indicators that this is wrong, and there's a lot uh, that, that that there is fakery going on. Jack White did a lot of work on that. Um, there are the, the, the knuckles and the way the chin is. You know, it does it doesn't look like Oswald's chin, and I'm thinking that's not even Oswald. So, but then you've got Marina. First of all, says she did it. Then she said they were shot with a different backdrop. Then she says she didn't shoot them. Well, she in, in Max Good's documentary, he mentions Marina's. Um, they, they talk about the news reporting on Marina Oswald and Marina Oswald changing her opinion, which makes her like a makes everything that she says just seems like it just you, you can't take it for granted or you can't take anything that she says um, for fact because she switched her opinion. And I go, well, she also stated that it was Oswald's rifle in the 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 book building and then in an interview when someone asked her about it she said no no you're wrong you have your facts wrong i never stated that and like she switches her opinion well she was being forced during interrogation as well too i mean they're having her sit in there and you got to think you're, they're only going to let you out if you go with what they need from you they need a statement from you it's like um when i heard someone talk about the zapruder film when they brought in abraham zapruder and said are these the photos that you took and he's like, yeah. And then he, he states, you know, everything. And they go, okay, cool, cool. But state it like this as well, too. Because they needed something that they needed him saying, okay, we got him on record, dude, saying this. Even though he said more than just what they cut out and took in bits and pieces. They only took the information that they wanted. And like I said, this is, I'm, I'm hearing this from a bunch of different people. But at the same time, I'm trying to funnel it out because I know everybody swings on different sides of things. And there's little minute details and differences. But again. You're compacting. Don't listen to these people. Yeah, you're compacting. Find 10 years. the paperwork. You know what? I will point you to Malcolm Blunt archives, and uh, that will keep you busy for the rest of the year and the year after. Yeah, but I'm telling you. But the good thing about this is that you can find it by subject. So as a pruder, there's a ton of material available. There's tons available on the Central Intelligence Agency. Although I would advise you not to go into it because it's a swamp. Mexico City. Is a massive swamp as well. It's an incredible amount of paperwork about the journey towards it with the bus in Laredo and all that crap and all the people that claim he saw him. No, he didn't see him. Blah, blah, blah. Full of it. Blah, blah, blah. Intelligence. You know, I'm glad I only focused on 40 odd hours of Oswald. I mean, I've read a lot of other stuff because while I was scanning things in, I basically read these documents. And I'll tell you, Malcolm's Archive is the best book around, as far as I'm concerned, because of all the material that's in there. Um, it's, you know what, you get a lot of opinions thrown at you, and that's what they are, opinions. And everybody's got one, and everybody des describes it in their particular way, and it's the same as in books. Look, I haven't read a book in years because, well, I'm busy with the paperwork, but I don't need to. You know, because I now have, so what is this? This, is a, this folder is on the nitrate test. Then I've got the palm print. Now the palm print has got- They lifted the palm print from the funeral home. The palm print's got about 50 odd pages. The fingerprints- Is that is real though? That, yeah. vid that video where they lifted the fingerprints of all those FBI agents sneaking into the funeral home to go get Oswald's fingerprints. Is that real? No, not that I know of, no. Uh, there's a, there's a, there, the fingerprints, I haven't even, 
I know that they took fingerprints of Oswald when in the evening. And I know they took fingerprints of him again, I think after the press conference when he's upstairs and they take his shirt and they do some pictures of him, mug shots, and that's when his fingerprints are taken again. I know of two occasions. I don't know of any other. I mean, I'm talking about the weekend, the assassination weekend. Because a, a couple CTers believe that, and apparently there's a video of it as well, too. And I have seen the video, and I just don't know what the context of it is. I don't know if it could be, because I've seen things. Well, things the biggest that... problem with the fingerprints is that, A, I don't know when, when they're exactly taken, but when they are taken, and I see the pictures of the fingerprints, I've got video footage of that. I can't reconcile that with the fingerprints that are on the archives. So... You know, there's 10 squares, two rows of five, and people put their fingerprints in that. But luckily, they weren't as tidy. So people are overlapping on these lines. So it's for me easier to see like, okay, that card shows that finger in that square over the line. So where are the ones in the archive? And I can't, I can't find that one, that set as such. Then I find a second set and that I can't reconcile either. Then I find an inkless set in a book from uh, which is called uh, First Day Evidence, Rusty Livingston. And that one was stolen from the evidence because no one else has that particular set and no one is nowhere else to compare with any of the sets that are in the archives. Then the fingerprints basically um, are uh, duplicated for the Secret Service and the FBI, and they turn them into their own versions by putting part of um, other prints on it. And it's just, it's really hard to come up with a narrative. And I've had this now for about a year, and I've have a draft article ready about it, but there's still work to be done. But it's such a mess. And the same goes with the palm print, but the Nitrate is even worse because in one of the pictures, when they oh see this is another thing. There's three people involved with this stuff, and they are in Fritz's office in robbery and homicide, and then they get photographed coming out, and it's like a dog and pony show. The first one comes out, fingerprints, shows them to the press, and the photographers and and the movie and the film guys film it, etc. etc. And then the palm print comes out and is held up, and then the last one comes out and has a tin of the uh, wax that they use to do the nitrate test with. That tin is empty. There's nothing in that tin left. There's just a brush. There's just a brush in the tin and that's it. Now, maybe it was his last bit, but hold on a minute. They were doing his right arm, his left arm, and his right cheek. And I, I didn't see them walk away with it. And then the FBI starts going, yo, man, where's the stuff? Yeah, it's being done. No, no, no. Where is the stuff? We've already asked you before. Well, uh, yeah, it's coming. No, no. Where is it? It's supposed to be sent this night. And then it doesn't get sent another 12 hours later. And then later on in the archives, if I really rightly understand, I haven't looked at it for a while, is that these nitrate test costs are utterly useless. They don't prove anything. Nothing about saying, oh, yeah, you fired a wife. What? Somebody deals with books and boxes with printing on it. It's got ink on it. Ink contains nitrate. It's contaminated already from the word get go. But I'll tell you one, then there's talk during a Warren Commission testimony. I think it's Pete Barnes, but also in Rampant magazines. And they say that the 
fingerprints were taken before the nitrate test. So it's even worse. If, I mean, if you believe that, that is even a worse contamination as such. He would have been double dipping. Yeah. Um, yeah. When yeah. It, Listen, well, can I interrupt? I just want to, can we have a three, five minute break? I just. So between the Warren Commission and the conspiracy theories, the conspiracy part with the fingerprints went to, they lifted it at the funeral home. But then when I spoke with Dale Myers, he brought up a great point, which is the aspect they already had his fingerprints because he was at the police department. They, that's one thing you do is you get people's fingerprints from there. But the one thing is when you were looking into the interrogation with Oswald, were the people from the book depository building there as well, too? Because one thing Dale Myers mentioned was they had Oswald in cuffs and they were walking him down the hall. And all there were a couple employees from the book depository building that pointed and said, hey, that's Oswald. Yeah, well, Oswald, uh, after he was dead, he was fingerprinted, not just because what was said uh, by these people. Uh, Paul, what's his name, uh, who uh, was there, the undertaker and. Um, but other people have said that the Secret Service came by to take fingerprints. Um, there is a Dallas police one that basically shows three little bits inside each square instead of one large single bit. And that's because they couldn't do a rolling motion with the finger. And uh, because if someone alive is alive, you can just roll that finger and they make that motion to basically to get the imprint onto the paper. Um, because these days you put your hand on a flat on the scanner and they will just take all of them all in one go. But if somebody's dead and his arms are stiff, rigor mortis is kicked in, um, you, you can't make that rolling motion. You've got that stiffness. So that's when they basically do the front and the two sides and try to combine that together. And that's what the fingerprint card roughly shows that there's three little tips, bits into that particular square instead of one large single one single print as such because i know in oliver's film brian edwards me mentions that on the rifle there's eight points of um identification you get from like at least palm print or whatever it is and there was none of that um so it, it was so when it comes to oswald's rifle for instance was so that wasn't his rifle that was just because like I said, you watch the pain documentary. She talks about how the police come. They say it's Oswald or whatever. Can we check your garage? They check the garage. There's this carpet. They go right over to the carpet and they press on it. And that's probably where he had it rolled up in the carpet. Yeah. In the blanket. And it does. And it, and it goes in. So that means that his rifle was gone. So then did they find his rifle at the book building or is it another rifle that they mistake for Oswald's? Because after talking to Rich, they talked about the news, for instance, at the time was reporting a bunch of different things, but wasn't a Carcano rifle, wasn't that rifle. They were reporting other rifles, an M1 Garand, but an M1 Garand makes the ping when the clip, when the clip empties out. And then they talked about the only way that it could have been that rifle or it could have been this thing or the rifle that was found was that if the clip had gotten stuck. And then I think it was AB, AB, ABC or CBS or whatever did a video where they showed, you know, shooting this rifle, but at no point does the clip ever get stuck in that rifle. So it, 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 it you see where like the mass confusion starts to be. And it's well, only there's, with time. There's, you know, there's, there's bad reporting, there's bad research and there's a lying from the government and, and, and the government agencies. The biggest Things that have been pointed out are basically um, the sling, the way the sling was mounted on the rifle that came out of the 
Texas School Book Depository doesn't match up with the one in the backyard photos, then the, the length of the rifle isn't uh, the same as the one that's kept at the archives. So it's, it's short or it's longer by there is so, uh, the, the one in the archives, I think, is longer than the one that is a 37 inch or 40 inch barrel uh, rifle. And um, I'm, if I'm if I've got this right, I mean, I haven't dug into the rifle that much. I, basically just about you see this is another thing like prayer man prayer man can dumble the whole deck of cards if you look at the Heidel id for the Heidel id to actually work and make sure that it's the one that was used for ordering the rifle now if i show you that the fbi inserted the Heidel id as such and you kill that off and you cut the head of the snake and you can talk about the ordering and the money order and this, that, and the other, but it goes, it doesn't make any difference anymore. It doesn't matter anymore because the high Dell ID was non-existent on the 22nd as such. It only comes into the picture after the order has been found by the feds at clients in Chicago. And by the way, what assassin is stupid enough that can buy any rifle over the counter in Texas, anywhere, left, right, and center, but no, 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 no. Buy a traceable weapon from a company, and it's a piece of crap weapon. It's a shite rifle. You know, I just thought, like, well, if it had been a Mauser, I would have said, like, okay, that makes sense. But it wasn't. But if it's a Carcano, it's great. But the Italians called it a humane weapon. <laughs> it's that bad. If you kill off the Heidel ID, you don't even have to talk about the ordering of the rifle as such. And it's the same thing with Prayer Man. If Oswald is Prayer Man, You've got a massive problem with everything because he didn't do it. When it comes to Oswald, they were keeping tabs on him for a long time. Like they had, they were, they were surveilling his mail. They were doing a bunch of stuff. But then the week right before the assassination attempt, everything was dropped. Do you find that's just very, very suspicious? Uh, it's odd. You know, I, I, I need suspicious is a big word, but you know what? It would be. Good to see uh, how suspicious that is in, in relation to, say, the monitoring of other people. You know, I mean, here's the thing. A lot of people just went like, well, Oswald was a traitor when he went to uh, uh, Moscow. And uh, he supposedly wanted to uh, get rid of his uh, American nationality and all that. And everybody took that as gospel. But the State Department had absolutely no rules in place of withholding a passport for Lee Oswald. Oswald could just walk into the embassy and say, listen, I'm applying for a new passport. I want to go back to the States. There was no rules in place whatsoever, whereas there should be, because, you know, what he did was pretty treacherous um, in that day and time. You know, it's like, uh, you want to put that in context, uh, there's somebody that decides to go uh, put radios together for ISIS in some uh, remote uh, place, you know, not at the front, not fight for them, but, uh, you know, somewhere remote and just put something together. You know, he was working in Minsk, Belarus. There's no Belarus right now. It's like near the Ukrainian border, above, just above it, um, miles away from everything, you know. So uh, there was nothing secretive there for him to do. When Russia, 
when Russia released their documents on the assassination of JFK, which I thought was always weird that they had assassination documents on JFK, but maybe it was to make sure that they weren't going to get blamed for something. Because if you look at anything that Lyndon Johnson or anybody did, you could definitely see points where they'd be like, we're going to end up going to war with Russia if you don't say this or if you don't do this type of stuff. Now, you can call that speculation. We can go with that. But I look at what the Russian document said. It doesn't seem like Russia liked Oswald that much. They talked about knowing that he was a spy, that they had these feelings that he was definitely part of an American type coup or whatever you want to say. But then with the idea of tearing up the citizenship, I, I start going either Oswald was doing it on purpose as a tactic to try and fit in, or you get into a point where he actually did think he was liked and he was trying to take out a citizenship. And that's where people, I mean, people attack him on many fronts. People attack him on, they have a video of him handing out flyers for fair play for Cuba. But then I bring up the question, how the fuck did Jack Ruby know what the fair play for Cuba was? He's in a meeting and someone pronounces the name wrong and he corrects the person as he's dressed up as a reporter, which brings even some more questions. Why am I having a mafia guy come up and kill this guy? And I get it. The mafia at this time worked with the CIA or the CIA worked with the mafia, whatever you want to say for like low level hit jobs that I, I, I can believe that. But I've heard accounts that um, Jack Ruby was inside the Dallas police station and walking well, he around. Knew a lot, he knew a lot of police. He knew a lot of police officers, a lot of them. I mean, one of them actually sold the gun, sold the gun to him that he used to snuff out Oswald. But I'll tell you what, when, when you come to the Fair Play for Cuba committee thing, the DR, he got into an argument with members of the DRE. Now, the DRE at that time was getting 50K a month, which is roughly $450,000 a month from the Central Intelligence Agency. So they, were, they, they had their finger in the DRE big time. But then at the same time, the second in command of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was a CIA asset. So... They played them, <laughs> both parties. And the Central Intelligence Agency had their fingers in both of them as such. They look up uh, the Miami Herald, I think. It's about three years ago. And go through their database search on their, on their website and uh, look, look it up. There's an article that came out around 2016, 2017. <laughs> that's like, that's just amazing. They had their fingers in both pies. And uh, just knew exactly what was going on as such. So, um, you know, but that's intelligence for you. So, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I just don't get involved with any intelligence, very little involved with, uh, involvement with the intelligence uh, community as such, because you never know what you're running into. Did you look into any of the witness testimonies that talked about, like, I didn't, like, they were picking out descriptions or giving descriptions of people that did not match Oswald's description? Um, not as much. The only thing I actually uh, tried to uh, look into was um, who gave Oswald's description to the Dallas police. And to this day, the suspicion goes for Howard Brennan, but um, um, it's not a hundred percent. And no, he's never been cited, never been quoted as such that he was the guy who, who 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 did that and who actually handed that description to uh, Herbert Sawyer, who, uh, who 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 set up the command post 
in, in, in the te Texas School Book Depository Association basically spoke to him. There are pictures of a patrol car right in front of the stairs, really close in front of the stairs, where he's sitting inside with, uh, um, with Howard Brennan as such. But uh, how that was relayed is, is, is still an enigma. And that's why this whole APB thing that I mentioned earlier um, is, is, is so vague, whereas um, they have Charles Douglas Givens uh, details uh, on the money, uh, correct. Now, if that, if that um, lineup, of, not lineup, the roll call by Roy Truly was so succinct and uh, well-organized, then why wasn't Oswald's name uh, put out and, um, um, you know, on that APB? Because the description is just not accurate enough at all. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a bit of a bit of an issue, whole thing. And on top of that, um, in um, what's his name, the reporter who stayed inside the building, he said Ken Ken Biffle. He said that uh, they weren't aware that Oswald was arrested at all at that time. So um, you know, this stuff. This is the fun of reading so much about this case. Uh, if you stay concentrated as, as, as much as possible uh, in, in just that building, like the Texas School Book Depository, about all the things that are um, happening. I'll tell you one thing, in my third paper, um, the T Anatomy of the TSBD, there's something wrong with every floor. Even the seventh floor, there's something wrong. And that's because there's a padlock on the latch that leads to the roof, because Baker and Truly supposedly we're going up to the roof, but this padlock is on the latch. So, and Truly and Baker never made any mention of a padlock, basically uh, locking the, the, the latch to, the, to go open the hatch to the roof as such. The sixth floor obviously is, is it's quite remarkable about the rifle and the shells. There's loads of rubbish going on in there. The fifth floor, you've got the three black guys and you've got Jack Edwin Doherty who who just is either as, as as dumb as a loaf of bread or just makes up things. And, um, you know, even the Warren Commission just went, what the hell is going on with this guy? And they wanted to grill this guy properly because they just didn't believe what he was saying. And um, the fourth floor is uh, the women, like uh, Barry Ernest. And for some reason, and I really, really, really regret not finding this, but Barry Ernest was only looking for the four women that were together, whereas, and the only his focus was mainly on two, and then the third one came in at the end. But there were eight, and I say 10 women on that floor. And that floor wasn't like a, loads of little units. There were like one big unit and a massive storage space next to it, and then a massive open space that led to the stairs. So these people could, confirm or deny each other's statements as such. And what we know is from the statements is that Dorothy Garner went to uh, look outside the window on the west side, but near the stairs, because she heard Victoria Adams and um, Sandra Stiles go down the steps as such, because it was wooden stairs, of course, with high, high heels clacking down, made a lot of racket. And, but there were at least four, and if not, six more there and um on top of and and i'll tell you why that is why i have that difference between eight and ten is because 
two of them, Judith McCauley and Avery Davis. Judith McCauley said that she was on the fourth floor. And then later on, the FBI, her uncle, who was with the FBI, made her change her statement and said, no, I stood on the front steps. Now I've studied the front steps and there's no Avery Davis and no Judith McCauley there whatsoever. And I spoke to her, I spoke to her daughter and she confirmed that the FBI basically forced her to change her statement, basically from the position from the fourth floor down to the, to the uh, front steps. And that's not so much to fill up the steps, but more for, um, to draw attention away from the amount of people that were actually on the fourth floor that could confirm that Victoria Adams went down really quickly and, uh, you know, didn't encounter anyone on those steps and so forth. Um, you know, and basically do this whole sixth floor, you know, um, deep sixties, uh, sixth floor shooter, uh, as such. And on top of that, I've got to mention that the fifth floor guys, the three black guys who came down, stopped on the fourth floor and briefly talked to the women. But if you start investigating that and you go through their statements, it becomes mentioned less and less and less until they say like, oh no, it was nothing. We just stopped and went down and that was it and blah, blah, blah. Whereas in the beginning they said, oh yeah, we had a chat and we stopped and we had a look out the window and this, that and the other. And what was actually said is of course kept behind. And I'll do you one better, the third floor, the third floor had three women looking on the west side down. Now, can you imagine? I, there's a picture in my paper that shows the west side of the Texas School Book Depository. From that Texas School Book Depository on the third floor, you can see everything. You can see Lee Bowers in his little, little shack, and you can see anything behind the fence and all that. And I'll tell you, they saw activity. I bet you they saw activity, and they were told to shut up, you know, and so one of them apparently walks from one office to another and then says she hears the shot because the window was open, which is where Stephen Wilson, who's seen in the Dillard shot on the third floor, standing in front of a closed window and basically says, yeah, it was through an open window. No, Wilson says, no, the window was closed because I had an air conditioning in that room, in that office. As such. So there's a massive contradiction. Then the women on the west side, one of them is, uh, uh, telling me, um, one of them was Sandra Sue Ellison, and the other one was, um, I forgot, Dolores. Spencer Keaton, something, something Spencer. Case. Here it is. Hold and on. Barry Ernst's book, it was like. Doris Burns. Yeah. And they said, we didn't hear the shots. So this is really odd because the fifth floor heard shots. The people on the fifth floor, the fourth floor heard shots. The second floor heard shots. The first floor heard shots. But the third floor, miraculously, three employees do not hear the shots. And why is that? Because they were on the west side and they were overlooking what was going on there. I'm still investigating. I hope I can find one of them alive because I bet they've got a killer story to tell. I'm telling you, <laughs> that's that would be like I would I would call the money shot if they uh, if one of them is still alive and I can talk to. But I doubt it. I think they've all passed away. Um, but it would be brilliant. That would be so awesome if I could get all of one of them. Could the conflating of evidence or testimonies between all the witnesses or all the people that were interviewed maybe separately and on the same day could 
some of them, maybe the testimonies conflate only because the police or the FBI or whoever only contacted certain ones to keep their mouth closed. And that's why we have this. No, because um, you've got a document that's called CE1381. And this is actually uh, a document that bit Hoover in, in, in his ass because um, he put a set of questions or five set of questions, five questions or six questions forward. And in that, they're basically asked specific questions like, did you see Lee Oswald at the time of the shooting? Really specific things. Yes or yes. Yeah, no, it's just like that. And of course, or did you see a stranger? And that was good for me because that helps me with prayer now. Because seeing a stranger, only Danny Arca Garcia mentioned seeing a stranger. And that was an old man who was with three elderly ladies in the car who stopped in front of the Texas School Book Depository and would like to use the restroom. And this was 45 minutes before the parade came past. So he escorted the man inside, told him where the restrooms were. The guy did his business, came out, and he saw the man get back in the car with the three ladies and basically drive up underneath the triple underpass. And that was that. That was the only stranger seen and mentioned as such. So when the lone nutters go, well, I could be a stranger. Now, first of all, that defies complete common sense. If you look at where the position of prayer man is in the far back left corner. Strangers don't put, put themselves there. And on top of that, there were about eight, nine people on those steps. I would have mentioned that. Is it like this guy we didn't know was standing at the entrance, blah, blah, blah. And this is the problem with prayer man. Nobody says anything about that particular person. Some people say he wasn't there. Oswald wasn't there. Molina, Love Lady, Bill Fraser, they all say, no, he wasn't there. But I'm saying, and Roy Lewis said he wasn't there. And I'll tell you, Roy Lewis and Bill Fraser are still scared. They're still scared to come up with the truth and say, you know what, this is what happened. And then again, what difference would it make? That's another thing. What difference would it make? And here's the thing. If you look at anyone with questionable beliefs or skin, so we've got black guy, Carl Jones. We've got another black guy, Roy Lewis. We've got a Hispanic guy, Joe Molina. Joe Molina got in so much trouble his house was tossed at two o'clock in the morning on the 23rd. And he was told to be in the DPD at 10 o'clock. And they keep him there till five, six o'clock for two interviews, two short interviews. They let him wait. And then the TSBD gets rid of him because Jesse Curry was blubbing during a press conference about Molina and basically that he was a subversive. And then you get all this crap of people saying, I ain't buying no books of anyone who's got communists inside or subversives inside. So they get rid of Molina and they give him three months pay and three months half pay and some holiday money. And it's Bon Voyage, Joe. And he'd worked there for more than a decade in the accounting department. At some point they had to take his, uh, what you call that? The paper, the paperwork with all the logos on it and stuff like that of the Texas School Book Depository as such. They had to take that, the stationery, they had to take that away from him because he wasn't allowed to write on it anymore. It's all really demeaning. And then they said like, well, we're, we're, we're starting to automate. Now, what they should have done is get rid of Aldous Williams because he was older and he was more closer to pension than his pension in age than Joe Molina was. 
So they just bought him out and said, you know what, you got to go. And they just used a few euphemisms basically to get rid of him as such. He wanted to take him to court. He wanted to take Jesse Curry to court. But, you know, at some point he got another job and the whole thing just phased out as such. Um, Fraser gets dragged in um, in the evening, early evening, and they interrogate him. And Frazier relays that, relayed in on, on about two or three occasions that Will Fritz wanted to, him to sign a pre-made statement. Now, that's another thing. Lone nutters think nothing of it. And it's like, excuse me, a pre-made statement that you're a co-conspirator? Excuse me. So here you go, sign that. And basically, that's a one-way ticket to the electric chair, especially over there. I'm thinking, I need... Nobody thinks anything of it. I'm thinking, but it just shows you how bent these coppers are. Corrupt. Yeah. So it's like, hold on a minute. Is that it? And then it just shows that afterwards he goes home and he isn't, not barely home. And they basically do it 180, bring him back and do a lie detector test on him. Now that lie detector test, it's gone. I've investigated it. Cannot be found. Cops say we gave it to the feds. Fed said we didn't receive it. Oh, so where did it go? We don't know, man. So, you know, and this is how it goes on. Anyone who's had any affiliation with Oswald or knew of Oswald and a little bit close, that's why everybody else keeps a total distance from him. I didn't know him, never talked to him. Um, you know, he, he was a loner. He kept quiet. He kept to himself and so forth. And, they, and they're right about that. You know, that's what his psychological report said as well. It's just somebody who didn't instigate anything. But at the same time, it's also like, yeah, no association. So basically, it was just like, you know, I hate to say it, but basically white people being affiliated with black people. That would be frowned upon in that time, in that, in that city. In the, in, in the South. Come on. It's like, no way. You don't fraternize with them. That's that. It's, it's unheard of. And anyone who does that, oh, why are you doing this? And, you know, well, this, that, that, and the other, or worse. That's one of the reasons why I blame the Central Intelligence Agency or just the military industrial complex for killing JFK was one of the strikes that I talk about, the three-strike policy that really got him out. One of them is Bay of Pigs, and you can blame um, Iran-Contra on that as well, too, or Cuban Missile Crisis, whatever you want to say. But one of the things I bring up, which a lot of people don't really think is a way, but I think it is, is that his deals with Africa. Um, Tom Aboya, uh, one of the people that were in Africa, had wrote a letter to these college institutions asking that, like, because we made a deal with Africa saying, um, you know, in three months or whatever, if you guys don't get your establishment ready, you don't get your, you know, you don't get, you don't build up your country, we're going to come over and we're going to do it for you. And uh, JFK came across Tom Aboya's letter to these college institutions saying, hey, we don't have a single kid here in Africa that is educated. How do you expect us to build up our institutions? And JFK funded them $100,000 out of his own pocket. And you look from a military standpoint, would it be better to go over to Africa, build up there, take over that and let that be a part of the states? And now JFK just threw a wrench into your plot by funding all these people. And actually one of the people that came over was Obama's father, Robert Kennedy met him at a um, conference, an environmental conference. And um, Obama had admitted that to him 
where I mean that you can say that could be speculation, but I count that as a strike. I mean, what no, I was I don't think so. I think uh, what's more important is uh, the CIA's involvement in uh, Congo, uh, Patricia Mumba and the Dak Hammersholt uh, thing as well. Those are dodgy times, and that's definitely the fingerprint of intelligence on that. Those two things. I mean, there's a there's a good film on a uh, good documentary on Dak Hammersholt. Um, uh, which is called Who Killed Dak Hammersholt, which is, uh, I saw this documentary two, three years ago, and uh, that's a very good documentary. And they get very close, and they have some really good evidence forward. And this the kind of research that I really appreciate as such. Um, if you ask me who killed Kennedy, I'd say the Pentagon, the JCS, as simple as that. Who's got, who's got the power? See, the Central Intelligence Agency is like the knight on the chessboard, but the queen is the JCS because the JCS says what the agency does. When you look in Malcolm's archive, there are JCS meetings. And in these meetings, they discuss how many weapons are needed to invade Cuba. And they determine how many guns go how many rifles, how many grenades, and so forth, machine guns, and so forth. Not the Central Intelligence Agency. Central Intelligence Agency basically makes the move on behalf of the JCS. That's how that works. You know, LeMay, people like that, they are the ones. LeMay was also, if you look at the the Kennedy, the Stone document documentary, it was LeMay who was present, puffing on his cigar during the autopsy as such. Not giving a shit about procedure, about not smoking in an autopsy room as such. He's king of the hill. Um, of course, you will never be able to pinpoint it as such. But if I had to pinpoint something like that, then I'd say yes. And of course, there's also this whole element of plausible deniability. You're trying to put as many stations in between um, for you, between you and the actual deed. So... You know, and they're the ones, when you topple someone, a head of state, you don't do that. Doesn't matter what country, yeah, wherever in the world, you don't do that without the army. The army has to say, yeah, all right, get rid of him. And that's when the coup d'etat happens. Now, that's basic stuff. Everybody knows that. So I would not look too deep into the specific elements, the foreign policy. This, that, and the other. Here's the thing. It's really simple. Kennedy pissed everyone off. That's the problem. He wanted to do the right thing in a lot of things, whether it was the Federal Reserve, whether it was the agency, Africa, Israel, Vietnam, Cuba, and so forth. You know what? When you look at Cuba and Bayer Picks, my God, did he piss the JCS off. The whole thing, about 13 days, the movies, that's just... The politicians against the generals. What? He basically made sure that Cuba did not get invaded. And then Vietnam is happening. And then he says, we're taking the advisors out. <laughs> they wanted to escalate. And he says, no, no we de-escalated. And he thought he was above them, you know. That's what every head of state should learn is basically when you get into power, make sure you get the generals that are on your side to keep that going and eliminate the ones that don't. That's how it works. It's a dirty game. 
and Kennedy wasn't dirty enough. It's too goody-goody, you know? It's the same as after the Bay of Pigs fiasco and just fire a few people. No, they should have been put into sleep forever in the bathtub, wherever the hell. Just send a message out. Nobody fucks with me, this, that, and the other. But that's the act of a king, not a president. So that's another thing. Well, he's you, know, on, you can he's debate on this till the cows come home, but... Yeah, he's on record saying that um, he thought he was in charge of these institutions, and he was talking about the Central Intelligence Agency. But I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but it's called a Blue Sky Memo. I had sent this to Larry Hancock, and he took it literally because the reference point for the Blue Sky Memo was during the Clinton administration during 9-11. And what it says is that the Central Intelligence Agency can act out of political and military jurisdiction or oversight of a higher, I guess, whoever their director is. Like That means they, they can do whatever go- they want anyway. Yeah. So that's what I said. And I, I mentioned that to Larry. I go, this is the prime evidence to prove that like the military industrial complex killed JFK. And he goes, well, no, it's, it's talking about 9-11. And I go, yes, but what you got to look at is this is the first document of it being down. How long have they been using verbal communication about this aspect? You well, know, they did their own thing back then when Dulles was in power because Dulles didn't brief them as such. He didn't brief them up to the extent of what was happening. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hold on a minute. Yeah, we're, we're, it's going tits up. We need, uh, we need air power. And he says, no, you're not getting air power. I told you beforehand, you were not getting air power. Um, Majoris Bundy plays a pivotal role in that whole bit about the air power as well. well I they mean, were that's so involved in the Bay of Pigs. They had so much uh, vehicles. Yeah, and well, that, that's there. what that is with the air power, with the yeah. Bay of Pigs. They were so used to getting their way all the time that when Kennedy said no, and then he didn't supply air power because they thought he was going to when it got to a certain point, but he didn't. They, that really pissed them off because then the whole right wing narrative became that it was uh, Kennedy that debunked the Bay of Pigs thing or, you know, made that whole mess blow up in our faces and lost yeah, but, all these you troops. know it's it already started during the oss days because all these guys were involved in second world war shenanigans okay and they come out and they're victorious and then they bring the top nazis back to the states and they use everything they have and that goes against the russians during the late 40s and the 50s operation paperclip okay? yeah all that yeah exactly so they're high on the hog and they are basically messing about in Latin America, Africa. They can do uh, Indonesia. They can do whatever they want. And it brings them a lot of money for the corporates and for themselves. And it makes the agency a very powerful entity. And now, well, I mean, unless you start bombing Langley or something like that, you, you have absolutely no way whatsoever to get your finger into that. It's you know, we've seen that during Obama years, drone attacks, yeah, were stepped up to such an extent that everybody went, yo, hold on a minute. Yeah. Not every everyone needs to be bombed as such, blah, blah, blah. But people brought that up, but it just also shows that somebody ahead of state is completely powerless against that. But we're drifting a bit, a little bit. We're <laughs> talking 40 years after the assassination. But it's had an effect. You know, the Kennedy, the Kennedy murder has had a death, well, an effect on on things like that and there is a certain group an invisible group but you know what well, is that any different than russia or you know or, or china i mean come that's, on that's what marina oswald said when she changed her opinion on national television when she was getting interviewed i think it was like 10 15 years later she talked about it. they go why did you change your opinion all of a sudden she goes i thought american government was different because you know she's talking about her government russia's government whatever you want to say and she talks about this aspect that are not that different 
Yeah. All right. Now ask me a Kennedy assassination question. <laughs> um, you've given me a lot, but I, I do got one aspect that comes to when it comes to prayer, man. How come this is the first time I've ever heard of prayer, man? Not okay, well, prayer man in the fourth paper, Anatomy of Prayer Man, I go into the history of it. So Prayer Man was only called Prayer Man about 15 years ago. So at first, this is in the 60s. Harold Weisberg was corresponding with Richard Eastbrake, who was a photography specialist and also into computers in that time. And he, those two, and Richard Bernabai were talking and they were exchanging information. Letters were written. And I found uh, letters in Bernabai's archive in Kingston, Ontario, and in Harold Weisberg's archive in Hood College. Um, Bernabai died very young and Richard E. Sprague went off the rails, so to speak. Um, umbrella man had a dart gun in his umbrella and was shooting a dart at, at, oh, I, ah, hey, look, I didn't make that up, but so Weisberg goes, my God, you've gone completely off the rails. What the hell is going on with you? So the speculation have, but Sprague was a collector. <laughs> really good collector got james he basically Bond chased octopussy over here yeah but he chased basically the the films copies of the films and he managed to get some good copies of the films now bernabai was really good with sketching so he made sketches based on the Wiegmann film and uh dave Wiegmann. dave Wiegmann is one of them who cap who captures um prayer man and jimmy donnell is the second one and um, they started discussing the man in the shadow. Then they started making a lineup of dots. Of, they drew the stairs, a graphic of the stairs, and they started uh, basically um, alphabetizing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, blah, 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 and basically started giving all these people a letter as such. This is where... Um, Sprake came in and Bernabai, and they started comparing notes and they were writing to each other. Then Sprague made, had five by four copies made um, by a professional photographer of the copy of the film, the Wiegmann film that Sprague got hold of. So this was happening between, I think, 66 and 68, roughly, in about an 18 month or two year period. And then I don't see anything about it anymore. And then it's quiet till 2005, I think, 2006. And there's a guy on the internet and um, Charles, his last name, it's in the paper. Um, he basically points out, this is Oswald standing on the steps. And this was a murky Darnell still shot. And I didn't know about it at that point. I didn't know about Prayer Man until 2013, because this is what, 2013? Sean Murphy goes on to, first of all, the JFK assassination forum, but he deals with too many idiots, lone nutter idiots, who are basically trying to refute him. But then when Bill Kelly starts to post in the thread 
Oswald leaving the TSPD. For anyone's information, this thread has sunk down to page 179. Um, I've just found out today, um, thanks to Vinny. And he basically said, look, this, the thread was closed. So therefore it just dropped down more and more and more. So it's now on page 179, if you're looking for it. But it's a massive thread. It's more than 100 pages. And the first 60 to 80 pages are really informative and good. And then it gets trolled by a bunch of dodos. Um, in that thread, they're not just discussing the photograph. They're discussing, they're using the power of deduction by going through the statements of the people who were standing on the steps as such. So they go through Shelley, they go to Lovelady, go through Fraser, And they also go through deduction by basically saying, okay, where is everybody else? And this is a really good method because they go through like, okay, first of all, who are these people um, that are standing on the steps, but where did the others go? So, and that's when 13.8 CE 13.81 becomes really handy because it says, I went to the dentist, I was ill in bed, or I went shopping, or I was standing on Elm Street uh, with five ladies, this, that, and the other, or I stayed inside the office, this, that, and the other. But the other beauty is, is that there's no stranger, again, CA 31. But on top of that, and this is really important, is that what kind of guy is actually standing there in that corner? How is he dressed? Now, if you look at Molina and Shelley and Otis Williams, they're office staff. They wear white shirts or a sports shirt or a jacket. That's what they do. So those people can be configured not to be um, stated that they are not a manual labor. Then if you look at the manual labor, laborers, how many white people, because they know this guy's white, are there? Well, there's Jack Doherty, there's Buell Frazier. Well, Doherty's on the fifth floor, as it says. Frazier, Love Lady. And at first, everybody thinks it's Love Lady. Because what it basically happened is that it's Algin 6, the photo, the famous photo of Kennedy being shot in the throat, is what leads to it. Because Love Lady is the one that goes, sticks his head out. And if you look at the photos that are taken beforehand, Lovelady's an incredible, curious person. He basically moves himself on that westerly side of the steps, going up more. And then later, when the shots fall, leans out to look what is going on. He's also the first one leaving the steps. The shots haven't even finished firing yet. And also, and, and, and Lovelady is actually already moving down the steps. How do we know that? Because Robin Unger made a really good, nice little gif of three frames of the Wiegmann film. And you can see that Lovelady lowers himself. And Shelley, who stood above him on the landing, is making a move to go down as well. Then they get caught up, cut, get captured into the Darnell film, but even clearly in the Malcolm Couch film. You can see Lovelady and Shelley already moving towards the knoll, whereas the others are still standing, and Carl Jones has already moved to a, um, a traffic sign post and basically stands on the concrete sledge to basically look and look further down because Elm is on a slope going down, basically, a slight slope going down as such. So he's like, you can see him going like that to go to, to get a better view going down. 
can also see ladies going up on the stairs and also getting a better view of trying to see what is going on without leaving the steps. Some of them actually joined. Some of them that were standing on the Elm Street bit are actually on the stairs and look, trying to look down that way. So you use the power of a deduction and that was basically discussed in that thread. And so Love Lady gets stricken off. So Shelley is stricken off. And then you go, okay, so what else? Yeah, well, Melina and, and Williams are there. So you go, well, who else is left? Oswald, right. Now, everyone said Oswald wasn't there. Everyone said, we didn't see Oswald from 10 to 12 or 12 o'clock or such. But I'm thinking, who wants to defend the cop killer? Because when he gets brought in into the DPD, what's happening? He killed a cop. He didn't say kill a president. No, nobody says that. He's killed a cop. Oh, oh, by the way, he's a coming defector. What? He's been in Russia. <coughs> Excuse me. He's been in Russia. Oh, right. Well, I don't want anything to do with that guy. That's how that works. That's sixties dollars for you. You know, doesn't matter. Sixties New Orleans or whatever. You can just say, forget about it. Ain't gonna happen. I'm not, I didn't know him. Oh no. So well clear of that. That's what it is. But the fact that he's a cop killer. My God, he's got branded on his forehead. He's got branding iron all over his face. That's what um Joe McBride said about Dallas police. He said that they one of the officers said they couldn't get him on the killing of um yeah, JFK, but they Lavelle. can pin him on Tippett. Yeah. Lavelle told him that that's true as well, that the Tippett murder was much more important than the Kennedy murder. But you know what? The pressure from the feds and the Secret Service. And you know what? The, the locals say, got to get rid of this lot. We got to get this solved pronto because we got the feds and the Secret Service and God knows what, who else, breathing down our necks. And we don't want them here. And we yeah. want them out. Yeah. Bill Alexander, the assistant DA, incredible right wing guy, responsible for electric chair convictions. Hated Yankees. Wanted Earl said that Earl Warren needed hanging. <laughs> it's that bad. And you know what? This is funny. The so you've got Fritz, and you've got Bill Alexander, and you've got Henry Wade. And these are all right wing, really heavy duty right wing people. And then you've got the fourth guy who used to be an assistant DA. Uh, hold on, let me just find his name. I always forget his name. But he's photographed during Henry Waite's uh, press conference after Oswald's press conference. And um, he, um, James Allen, that's his name. And he was a civilian at that time. But he's present inside Fritz's office during the interrogation. And he's there to basically monitor it and how we're going to, you know, uh, get this guy to be guilty and, uh, to, and, you know, and send them off prison or the chair, whatever. And this guy was a friend of Fritz and he had full access. And even Wade was surprised about that. He said, I can't believe that Jim Allen is there because, you know, he used to be an assistant DA. He became later became a judge. And, you know, if you look him up on Google, they, people aren't mm -hmm. talking favorable. This is somebody who sends people to the chair as well. Right wing. Hardcore, you know, you don't mess with these people. The second they have you in your sights, that's how that goes. Simple as that.
He's got worse oh, reviews than a two-star motel. Yeah. Yeah, no, something, yeah, something along those, those words. But so that's what you're dealing with. Those are the people that are investigating and, and, and see if you are guilty. And they do their best. And they basically manipulate the evidence left, right, and center. That's, you know, everything, nothing is crystal clear and says like, well, you know what? That's totally against it, this, that, and the other. No, because I can put 10 arguments against it. Whether it's the pistol, whether it's the rifle, the fingerprints, the palm print, the the, the, um, uh, the nitrate tests, you know, just all these things. You go, you know, the gun being tossed at him. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then the interrogations themselves, you know, things have been twisted. And it just shows the Fritz notes, they were hidden for 30 three 34 or 35 years yeah 34 30 33 years they were hidden and then after his death what 10 years after fritz's death or 15 years after his death they all of a sudden come above war they were donated anonymously and then host these notes come out and that's only then they weren't anonymous. They were came right out of the magic garage that the pains have. No, 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 no. <laughs> they come out of they come out of uh, Will Fritz's little box, whatever it was. You know, somebody said, "Oh, you know," but it's good because, but they weren't contemporary. They were written after, after the, in, after Oswald's death, death, and we have a, got a full on suspicion that um they were written uh with help of hosties notes that's uh, what we suspect the only thing that's really contemporary are hosties notes during the first interrogation and there's a fun story fun fact so hosty arrives at dpd at quarter to three and first of all hosty had a meeting with ed Coyle of military intelligence they crossed the road and the parade passes by, and then here the shots, this, that, and the other. So he goes back to the office, and then they said, look, if I had this guy called Oswald, you need to go there because you've got a file on this guy. So Hosey goes down to the DPD and together with, and joins up later on. But when Hosty arrives at the station in the basement where Ruby shot Oswald, because people park, people park their cars there, he meets Jack Revel of the Criminal Intelligence Division, and they start talking. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that Revel and Hosty had an altercation the day before, and a bit of a ruckus, as we uh, say that here. But he comes in at a quarter to three, and he says, my God, what's this guy's name? Yeah, it's a guy called Lee Oswald. Oh, my God, I knew it was him. He's a commie agitator, stayed in Russia, and uh, he has the, potent, uh, the pot potential to kill the president, according to a report by Jack Revel. Now, Jack Revel, of course, has got bone to pick with Hosty, but the beauty of it is it's more an, a DPD versus FBI thing. And so Ganaway the head of the criminal intelligence division says, write a report on that. So faster than the speed of light, this report gets produced by Revel. And that causes a massive ruckus between the feds and the DPD because Jesse Curry goes on TV and basically makes the feds look rubbish. Now, that's something you don't do 
when J. Edgar Hoover is in charge, okay? So he's somebody with a massive uh, grudge. And it is found out later on, first of all, Hosty gets pulled out after the first interrogation. He's there. And also he embarrasses the Bureau even further when um, the Secret Service gets to talk and overhears conversations of, of Hosty as such about subversives, et cetera, et cetera. And that costs him his job of being present at the interrogation. Hosty is the one with the file. Hosty is the one who knows about Oswald. Hosty is the one who interviews Marina Oswald because Oswald is blowing a fuse when he finds out, so you are Hosty. And he stood up and had a go at him and exploded with rage about accosting my wife. Okay. But Hosty gets pulled out and it's only book out that's left for the rest of the interrogations. Then you've got this other guy, Thomas Kelly, who's an inspector. And he was, I think, in Kentucky that day or in Oklahoma. I'm not 100% sure. And he basically comes in the early evening because he gets on the plane and he comes down. And those two guys, they make reports. Are they accurate? Well, they disprove certain things that Will Fritz writes. And that's another thing. By just putting it all in the timeline, again, you find out what's wrong and what doesn't rhyme between these three between these three and you find out that kelly is making stuff up at some point because neither bookhouse or fritz's report um confirm that what he said of oswald not seeing the parade it's total rubbish and on top of that you've got uh fritz's report which is an undated report which has been there are, I think, six or seven versions of it available. Steve Thomas did some good work on that. And if you read that report, then Fritz is lying through his teeth on quite a few matters when it comes from a timing point of view. Don't forget, Oswald did not have the chance to phone anyone until roughly at between 1.30 and 2 o'clock nearly 24 hours after he shot, supposedly shot, or no, when he comes in, is basically arrested for, uh, for his so-called offense. 24 hours. That's when he gets his first call. And that's when he said, he said shortly before that to ABC, um, I want to speak to John Abt. But it takes him still another three hours before he finally gets, tries to get hold of him and makes the phone call. He had a, quite a few phone calls um, that day trying to get a hold of Apt. He spoke to Ruth Payne. Ruth Payne didn't help him. If you, if you look at the documentary and the way she talks about it, she makes it sound like she helped him, but she didn't. Look at her Warren Commission testimony. She didn't want to help him at all. She was hostile to him. And was she his babysitter? You bet your ass it was. <laughs> She was just it's just like the Moran Shield. That's her role. That's her role. Nothing bigger than that, you know. But uh, so when you look at, especially by by timing it, and put it in the right boxes of of, of what time of the day this was done and what hour, and I'm trying to put everything within, you know, give or take 15 minutes, 10 15 minutes, and it it has managed 
I've been able to basically put a puzzle together in therefore being able to see the larger picture and saying that they had a really terrible time in putting the evidence together for the Kennedy assassination and that they worked on the Saturday to uh, put it all together, the backyard photos being one of them to, against him as such. Um, they had nothing. They couldn't get nothing. And that's what Hoover said as well. Hoover said they had nothing. We provided the evidence and they did with the Heidel ID and the second floor lunchroom encounter. They provided that. Oswald didn't, they did. Well, Bart, you've given me enough of your time, man. I'm going to have to listen back to this episode a couple of times to soak up all the information. But where can people find your site and um, find the information and all the things that you've laid out perfectly? Because you've done a damn good job. Thank you. It's uh, prayer-man.com. Prayer-man.com. My four papers are on the front page. Clickable links. Scroll a little bit down. Um, it takes you to the document on Google Drive. At some point, there will be uh, bullet-pointed versions because altogether, all four papers are around the 550 mark. Um, the but they're they're easy to read through. It's it's just a bit of a scroll mouse scroll button fest. So uh, you, you know you're gonna get a bit of a lame finger. But if you want to wait uh, till the end of the year, then, uh, you know, perhaps then the the, uh, the one one page of the one version, basically all four condensed together. But uh, that will go at the expense of some info that's in these papers now. So actually, I would recommend uh, you go uh, through the stuff right now. Um, I can't say which one is my favorite, but I will tell you that I've had the most work with the interrogations one. No one has ever done that before to go that deep and that um, that much info condensed into uh, one paper just about the interrogations as such. And I've had to cut things out. I just wanted to keep it as much to, well, what's with Oswald and his innocence or his guilt and about the things they're bringing forward as such. And the first paper is about the lunchroom encounter in great detail is discussed what people have said about this matter and how it's basically disproven and as a total lie. Um, Roy truly, the worst liar in the world. He's just given the game away quite easily. Um, you won't see that just by seeing or reading his foreign commission testimony. You have to go through the statements and what other people says and therefore, again, build a picture as such. And that's what these papers do. Um, what I told you about the TSBD, about every floor being wrong, again, by looking at all the statements of the people that are inside the Texas School Book Depository and what they say, another picture starts to emerge. And each floor has got something to say one way or another. And then the last one, the prayer man thing, is basically based on um, the history of prayer man and the um, research gone into it, the search for the films. It's still ongoing. Um, I have one source which I want to tap into and I'm going to tap into hopefully soon and uh, yeah we'll see in six months whether I'm doing a movie or I do my own thing on YouTube or uh, you know I'm, I'm trying to do everything uh, to get it out of the way by the 60th 
you know, I think that's a nice uh, decade to uh, round it all up. I hope to talk to a few people of the TSPD uh, that are still alive over the next few months and add that as well. And I have a bunch of interviews that are already going to be added. So for, there's going to be an update regardless in a few months time and uh, with new information added on. And, um, you know, then I hope to end things in that in, in a way that also Malcolm's archive and the papers uh, by end of next year. Doesn't mean that I'm going to be out of the game, but uh, I'd like to uh, slow down and uh, focus more on other things as such because uh, it's been incredibly uh, time consuming. I compare myself to Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the First Kind with that damn mud mountain on the table. Well, my mud mountain is that is a pile of documents, but it's a bit bigger than that mountain he built. But that's that's the way I look at it, and I hope that intensity is. Uh, becoming a bit less because um, it's full on. And, uh, you know, I'm not interested in talk about the conspiracy. I mean, the conspiracy is in the evidence and uh, I'm not interested in the shooters. I mean, that, that opportunity went uh, after 90 seconds and, uh, you know, just see how, how, how people basically just been messing with the evidence and read between the lines. That's another thing that's a, that's a characteristic you must have, but you can only develop by uh, after reading uh, so much evidence. That's what I, uh, I, I see that in, a, in, in a, an alternative way with um, Malcolm Blunt and the Central Intelligence Agency. No one can read documents like Malcolm does because he can, he can fish out the euphemistic language and the lies and, 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 and all the other bits. And, uh, you know, that technique is, is quite helpful. And let's face it, most people, it's way too daunting to go through all that material and they say, forget about it. I mean, if I had a full-time job at this point, I would say I'm dropping down to 2% activity uh, instead of what I'm doing now. No, it's true. So, uh, and I am looking for new work. So, uh, but as soon as that happens, that will have an effect on, uh, on, on working as such. That's why I'm trying to get things done and out of the way. So uh, I can just also focus on some other bits, you know. It's not healthy to do all this stuff. So uh, especially being focused on one subject as such. And uh, I've I'm definitely not got not... gray hairs for the amount of time I've been talking to people about it. It's, uh, you know, the, here's the thing. You, you talk in a really wide spectrum. And if you want to progress, you can do two things. You can just read and be interested and say, you know what, I'm going to read 50 books. And, uh, you know, one is about uh, Secret Service and one's about Tippett and one's about, or three or four is about New Orleans and Dallas and this, that, and the other. And, you know, that's nice. And it gives you a really good basic understanding of what was happening during that time. Some of it is assassination related and some of it isn't. But it's more about the social economic climate and the political climate and so forth. And that's really interesting. Um, but if you want to make headway into research, then forget the books. I mean, read the books regarding that particular subject. But then after that, you know, keep them for reference, keep them on your desk and just put your markers in there and start highlighting bits and dust and that, but then get to the documents because the documents is where the juice is because documents get quoted, but you only get the quote from that particular document. What else is in that document? What that person may not have thought of being important. Whereas there could be some dynamite in that particular document. And that's when you can go into Malcolm Blunt's stuff. You can go into the National Archives. 
There are other archives online, Hood College, Weisberg. I spent a year at Weisberg in 2015. I just went through everything. And now I just go there once in a blue moon and I go, oh yeah, it's all about that. There's still stuff there where you just go majorly interesting. And that's how you slowly develop an interest. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to focus on Oswald at that point. And I do read bits on Secret Service or New Orleans or a agency as such, but I'm not going, oh yeah, I need to put that aside. I just read it for fun and just in between, just read something else instead of just the Texas School Book Depository and Oswald's Last Hours. And, so. and that's what you'll find on my website. I basically, I think I've got about a hundred people. They all have their own page. And some of the pages haven't been done yet. There still needs to be things being added on. And, you know, but I update the website almost every month. So uh, there's always interesting bits added. Photos, that's another thing. We recognize people. Me, uh, Linda's, Linda Giovanna Zambanini does great work, helps me with that. Um, you know, and the documents, you know, Malcolm Blunt has just been an enormous help. And I, and I, paste everything in there, all my sources, everything. I don't hold anything back. All the bits that I can talk about and I'm talking about, it's all there. So, But I would basically suggest for people to read the papers and, uh, you know, click on the links. If you if you don't believe it, uh, you know, it's all verifiable. That's the beauty of it. It's all there. Sometimes I insert the documents. It's like, it says it right there. It's there. And if, you know, now for space reasons and editing reasons, I basically have taken out a lot of pages, a few hundred that had documents on them, in them. And I basically replaced them with links to say the Mary Farrell website. You should talk to Rex Bradford as well. Rex Bradford is the king of documentation. He knows everything. And you need to talk to Joe Bax as well. Joe Bax is one of his kind. He basically does all the riff numbers of all the documents. That's like plane spotting, right? Standing, standing next to the airbase and take notes of the decal numbers that are on the tail end of the plane and go, right, this plane, DA-4702, landed, blah, 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 at such a time. That's how they found out about extraordinary rendition flights because of those hobbyists standing there. Well, Joe does something similar, but then with the riff numbers, by finding out, and they're, according to his calculations, <clears throat> or his collection of riff numbers, half has only been published. There's loads of stuff that is just not there. It's just not released. And that's what I find out with Malcolm's documents, because as soon as there's a riff number, I run it through Google and find out like, oh, is it online? And it isn't. And I'd say 40%, maybe 50 of what Malcolm's documents are, because he got them in a particular time era in the, in the late 90s and, the, and, and, and in the 90s, the majority he got. And there's stuff that was dropped or disappeared afterwards. And so forth. So, and the documents that are missing still, uh, you won't find a smoking gun, but you'll find questionable things that the agency did. And, you know, they rather would not have come out as such. You know, it's like the torture uh, transcripts and the tapes and all that. And it was it Gina Aspel, basically 90%, they basically just wiped off and said, no, that's not going to be released, this, that, and the other. And just from the few pages that did come out, you already go, oh, oh, oh. And then it's like, I think that there's 90% or 95% more stuff. <laughs> what, what on earth is in that? And exactly. And it's best not to know because it's all questionable. And it was questionable back then in the 60s. So, and sometimes it's just better to keep that stuff out. 
you guys being Americans and want to have everything out in the open, compare it to England. In England, you have World War I things. Some lord did something questionable. So the family name cannot be put into question or dragged through the mud as such. So it's just locked up forever. You know, you can't get it out. So, you know, that's one thing about America is good that you can go through the documentation. You can find a lot. And even though there's a lot lost, I mean, Malcolm said there's a lot disappeared. A lot of church committee stuff has disappeared. A lot of customs stuff has disappeared. Oswald and customs, incredibly, incredibly interesting material. New Orleans and customs and so forth. An agency connection. That's really uh, interesting stuff. Um, you know, on the church committee as well. The church committee interviewed everyone. And the Rockefeller committee, same thing. Very, very interesting. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I've already missed I got a lot, a lot of, of stuff out. I got a lot of questions for you that we're going to talk off air, but I'm going to link all your links in the description. Um, well, you can talk on there. I don't care. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter. I, it's three it's, hours. I got to pee. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm going um, to put your link right at the ending and everything. I appreciate the time you've given me to chat on this podcast. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast.